This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 213th edition of the program. I hope you all are having a fantastic week. Today is Friday, October 11th. And before we get started, I want to take some time to thank all of our newest Patreon, PayPal, and YouTube members, all of which either signed up for the very first time to support us this week or increased the monthly pledge that they were already giving us. And that includes Andrew Cicetti, Greg Trex, Marit Vance Blunter, Morgan Spicer, Nicole Primo, Pamela Swartz, Patricia Trogott, Robin, Sean O'Brien, Shane Foss, Spencer Terramoto, and Tony Perez. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the show and join the independent progressive media revolution, you can do so by going to humanistreport.com support, patreon.com forward slash humanistreport, or by clicking join underneath any one of our YouTube videos. So this week on the program, we'll talk about the aftermath of Bernie Sanders' heart attack and what some Democratic Party strategists are saying about him. I'll provide you with an update to the Amber Geiger trial and a tragic turn of events that unfolded after she was convicted of murder. Amy Klobuchar goes full Republican on Sanders, Warren, and Yang. Ellen DeGeneres gets buddy-buddy with George W. Bush. Republican Bobby Jindal claims Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax will hurt quote-unquote ordinary people. We'll talk about Bernie Sanders' plan to rein in the DNC's corruption and get money out of politics. Nina Turner explains why elites are against Bernie Sanders. We'll look at interviews with some of Donald Trump's most deranged supporters and how Joe Biden's biggest donors are starting to panic as his campaign sinks. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today's episode. Hopefully you guys will enjoy the show. Let's go ahead and get right to it. As many of you know, last week Bernie Sanders was hospitalized and we now know that he suffered a heart attack. Now, thankfully, he's okay. He was released. We were told that there was a stent that was put in and um, he already is ready to get back on the campaign trail. Now, after he was released from the hospital, the Sanders family put out this video. Hello, everybody. We're in Las Vegas. I just got out of the hospital a few hours ago, and I'm feeling so much better. I just want to thank all of you for the love and warm wishes uh, that you sent to me. Uh, see you soon on the campaign trail. Thank you all so much. It really made a difference. Now, on top of that, reporters saw him and Jane taking a walk, and Bernie had this to say about when he would be getting back on the campaign trail. How are you feeling, Senator? I feel very good. Thank you. When can we see you back on the trail? Getting back to work uh, a little bit right now, uh, but mostly what I'm trying to do is, I used to walk a good uh, distance every day and I got out of that habit, uh, I'm trying to get back into it, so that's what I'm going to do right now, alright? He's going to be okay. Bernie Sanders is going to be okay. Hearing him speak there and assuring us that he's not done, 
that tells me that we have nothing to be worried about. Now, initially, I didn't make a video about this. I talked about this a little bit on Twitter, but I didn't address this in video form because I just, I wanted to take some time to kind of digest this information. Um, it, it admittedly had me pretty depressed. Like, I was really feeling down. Like, this really affected me personally because even if I knew that Bernie Sanders would be okay, even though it was really nice to see that video that he put up, you know, just knowing that someone who's so kind-hearted, you know, had to deal with a heart attack, how scary that must have been for him and his family, you know, it, it really just had me down. Um, it had me down, so I really felt like there was no sense in me putting out a video because I had nothing to contribute to this conversation. I was feeling the same that everyone else was feeling, you know, that um, I was worried but optimistic and just hoping that he would be okay. But now seeing Bernie Sanders already taking this issue and using it as a means of getting us towards Medicare for All as justification for why we need Medicare for All, because if this was just a normal person in this predicament, they could have died if they didn't have medical insurance. They could have gone bankrupt as a result of this. You know, it, it shows me that he's not going anywhere anytime soon. And I really wanted to make this video letting people know that this is not something that we need to be worried about. If Bernie Sanders says that he's okay, then believe him, he's okay. Because if somebody is genuinely not able to run or occupy the White House, if they were, you know, uh, physically or mentally incapable of doing that, you would see greater signs of deterioration. And Bernie Sanders, you know, up until this point has been a beast. He's energetic. He, um, you know, he, he's going to be okay. Now, what I want to emphasize is that even if you're still worried, even if seeing him and hearing me doesn't assure you, let me just say this. We don't get to choose. We don't get to dictate when other people are done fighting. If Bernie Sanders says that he's still in this fight, he's still in this fight. Just because he had a heart attack, that doesn't mean that we get to say he's done. That doesn't mean that reporters get to say, you know what, Bernie Sanders is toast. This is not a death sentence. Having a heart attack does not mean that... His life is nearing its end. That's not what that means. Hell, even a death sentence isn't always a death sentence. Uh, back in 2015, my dad was given six months to a year to live. He's still with us. He's not going anywhere. And he lived long enough to get a procedure. I believe it was a stent, actually, that uh, prolonged his life, you know, additional years. So the point is, we don't get to dictate when people are done fighting. And I want to stress that. Now, I have no idea this will actually hurt Bernie Sanders politically. It may. I don't know. I don't know. But if you are a Bernie Sanders supporter, understand that if Bernie Sanders tells you he's okay, then we should just accept that and accept that it's good enough. Because I believe him and I can see him. If, you know, he wasn't going to be able to continue this fight, we would we would see, you know, that Maybe he wasn't so sure of the fact that he's ready to continue, but he looks really good. For someone who just had a heart attack, he looks really good. Um, so I'm encouraged, but still, even though I knew he would be okay, this really affected me, and I just wanted to take some time to, like, not speak on it. You know, let let me digest the situation, um, not just put out a video where I make you guys feel depressed. And again, it wasn't like I was like, oh, God, he's going to die. You know, I wasn't feeling that way. But, you know, sometimes you just have to give things time. And I think that that was, uh, that was important. 
But nonetheless, politics is politics, right? And we are in an American political climate where politics is as toxic as it can possibly be. So, of course, people are using this as a reason to essentially discount Bernie Sanders. And what's weird to me is that they're not making the argument that I assumed they would make. They're not saying, well, maybe this shows that, you know, he's not in good health. What they're saying is maybe Bernie Sanders isn't qualified because he's dishonest. Because here's the thing. He was admitted um, to the hospital and we knew that he had a stent put in. They didn't tell us that he had a heart attack until three days later. I don't see an issue with that. They've been incredibly transparent. But, you know, people within the Democratic Party, for political purposes, I'm assuming, are saying that's an issue. The fact that he wasn't upfront, the fact that we didn't get minute-to-minute updates, that says something about whether or not we can trust Bernie Sanders. And that is what I find absolutely egregious. So, as Holly Otterbein and David Siders of Politico write, it's one of those things where the cover-up is worse than the crime, said Andres Ramirez, a Nevada-based Democratic strategist and former vice chairman of the Democratic National Committee's Hispanic Caucus. I don't think anybody would have cared if they said he had a heart attack, got out a few days later, and then everything's good. Instead, he said there seemed to be a refusal or hesitance to say Bernie Sanders had a heart attack. I think it's less of an issue about his age and more of an issue of, hey, Bernie, you're supposed to be the transparent candidate. It's better to be upfront as you can as quickly as you can, said Karen Finney, a former spokeswoman for Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign, adding that there may have been a medical reason that Sanders' team did not disclose his heart attack earlier, because to some degree it becomes a trust issue. And to that I say these people are absolutely disgusting. Fuck all the way off. There was no cover-up. He wasn't hiding anything. They told you. You had to wait three days to give the family a little bit of time to digest that news. Fuck off. That's what I have to say about that. The fact that this is what they're using, they're trying to flip this into an issue about, oh, maybe we can't really trust Bernie because he's not transparent. It's just, it's egregious. But it's totally unsurprising. Of course, this is what they do. I'm actually surprised that they're not trying to, you know, fearmonger about his health more, but the fact that they're trying to say, well, you know, maybe we should be a little bit uh, iffy about Bernie Sanders and maybe question what else is he not telling us about his health. That's disgusting. That's egregious. You can see him. You can hear him. That's all you need. They told us. That's it. Why do you have to start cooking up these conspiracies about, well, maybe there's other things he's not telling us. That's what they were essentially implying. Why do you have to suggest that he's a liar? They just needed some time. Why is that so difficult for you to comprehend? They needed some time. Maybe they didn't want a million different questions from the press. They're running a campaign. He's a front runner. He's one of three front runners. I mean, I could understand if they needed some time. Like sometimes when you get news that is really scary, you just need time to digest it. I needed time to digest this news and I'm not even in the Sanders family. So for them to say this, it's disrespectful and you know, I don't know what to say about it. All I know is this. Again, Bernie is going to be okay. Bernie Sanders is going to be okay. And I feel confident in that just by seeing him, okay? And if he wasn't going to be okay, I don't think that he would continue to run this campaign. I think that he believes um, he's going to be fine and he is in this for the long haul. And so long as he assures us that that's the case 
then nobody else can really say that Bernie's time is up. You know, that's just talk. You can see him. He has his mental faculties in order. Physically, he can still, you know, he can campaign. And even if he was in a wheelchair, if he said he's still willing to fight, that's up to him. That's not up to me. That's not up to you. That's not up to reporters. So, you know, it's disrespectful for them to suggest that he was being shady here in this situation. Can you just give them maybe a week before you start trying to smear him just a week? Even in this, you know, circumstance, I just, I mean, Jesus Christ, these people are absolutely relentless and they don't care. They just want to attack Bernie Sanders because political agenda is, you know, more important than everything else to these people. But, you know, Bernie Sanders, he's going to use this opportunity to explain how, you know what, now I'm going to fight even harder for Medicare for All because guess what? I have health insurance. I can afford this, right? I don't have to worry about getting a medical bill. Others wouldn't be so lucky. So he's going to use this to legitimize himself as a fighter for the people and explain why we need Medicare for All, why we need progressive policies. So I'll leave that there. You know, I was feeling down about this, not necessarily because I thought that, you know, Bernie was in trouble or that this was a death sentence. It's just, you know, it's difficult to uh, to digest bad news about people that we admire and love. Just the fact that he had to worry for a minute that he was in trouble or, you know, that his family had to deal with, you know, him having a heart attack. That's really scary. You know, it's scary. I've been there personally, so I can empathize. And, you know, my thoughts go out to the Sanders family. Bernie Sanders is a fighter, and I have no doubt that he's not going anywhere anytime soon, and he's in this for the long haul, because he cares about the American people, and um, he's not going to stop fighting. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Capitalism is a virus. It seeks to constantly commodify every single component of our society. And it cannot coexist with democracy because it's not just like, you know, capitalism will stop short of democracy itself. No, it will eat away at democracy as well. So that way, even that becomes a money-making venture where we introduce a profit motive. And, you know, if you are going to try to get capitalism to coexist with democracy, then you've got to have some really, really strong controls. You have to have it written in the Constitution that we will not allow capital to subvert democracy itself. But understand that since capitalism is a virus, it's going to evolve, it's going to change, and you could institute some type of regulation to curtail its influence, but that's only temporary because capitalism will always find a way to destroy whatever it sets its sights on. But with that being said, Progress is progress. So even if we could find some way to temporarily curtail its influence, then I think that's a victory. Now, just to demonstrate how we've entered late-stage capitalism in the United States, a 2014 Princeton University study shows how capitalism has corrupted democracy. Because Drs. Gillens and Page found that policy outcomes are not driven by preferences of average Americans. Rather, they are dictated by the preferences of elites and special interests. And this is what capitalism does. You can say that, you know, capitalism broke our system, but if you understand how capitalism functions and you understand the fundamentals of capitalism, then this is kind of what you'd expect. Of course, it's going to start eating away at our democratic institutions because that's what capitalism does. The goal is to increase money. 
There's that incentive for everyone. It even pits us against individuals within our own family. If your brother borrows 100 bucks from you and doesn't pay you back, that could permanently strain your relationship because to survive, we have to constantly be maximizing the money that we have and the money that we make. So that's what capitalism does. So we complain about for-profit private interests in healthcare and charter schools and private prisons. And, you know, that's an issue, right? But these capitalistic influences within these industries, they get a lot more difficult to root out once capitalism starts really eating away at the democratic process itself and, you know, starts requiring capital for electoral success and capital as a means of influencing policy outcomes. But Bernie Sanders, amazingly, has been able to unilaterally subvert the capitalist status quo when it comes to electoral politics. So he's not taking campaign contributions from special interests because he knows that these contributions corrupt other politicians and influence their worldview. So he's changing the game by rejecting that money and he's also trying to change the status quo so his campaign style isn't just going to be the exception but will instead become the rule and he announced a plan to get corporate money out of politics once and for all and he is doing this by targeting corrupt institutions like the dnc and um also the presidential inaugural uh, process and I love it. So this is the issue that he wants to draw your attention to. In 2016, 17 donors gave three quarters of the Democratic National Convention funding, with large corporations like Bank of America, Pico Energy, Comcast, and Facebook each donating over $1 million. Their lobbyists were everywhere and filled the VIP suites. This type of corporate sponsorship is a corrupting influence and must end if politicians are going to represent the American people. And when it comes to presidential inaugurations, corporate donors spend tremendous amounts of money on inaugural events. In 2016, Trump's inaugural donors included AT&T, Bank of America, Boeing, ExxonMobil, General Motors, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and many more. Private prisons also shelled out hundreds of thousands of dollars for Trump's inauguration, and this is nothing new. Corporate donors to the 2013 inauguration included Microsoft, Boeing, Chevron, Genentech, and numerous federal contractors. Many of these corporations have federal contracts in business that comes before Congress. It is absolutely absurd that these entities are allowed to spend enormous sums of money in an attempt to garner favor with the President and Vice President of the United States. So the question is, what is he going to do about all of this? What is he going to do to stop that corporate influence? Uh, he's going to ban it. He's going to ban corporate influence from the DNC, the DNC convention, and from presidential inaugurations. And he's also going to cap individual donations at $500 a piece. That will have a substantial influence. But to really have structural change, you also need to find a way to change the way that we finance elections. And Bernie Sanders is taking his model and he is going to try to make that the rule of the road, right? So what we need to do, if we truly want lasting change, if we want to get capitalistic forces out of the democratic process, you can't just pass a law because that law will be chipped away at, the courts will uh, eat away at it. You need a constitutional amendment. And that's what Bernie Sanders is proposing. So he wants publicly financed elections. And what he's proposing is a constitutional amendment to overturn Supreme Court decisions like Buckley v. Vallejo and Citizens United, which say money is speech and unlimited sums of money can anonymously be given to super PACs. Now, on top of that, he's going to pass legislation that will end super PACs entirely. 
That will be a game changer in and of itself. He'll also abolish the FEC and replace it with a federal election administration, which actually will have some teeth and can regulate campaign finance violations more effectively. He'll end the influence of corporations at the DNC, which means ban donations from lobbyists and corporations, institute a lifetime ban on lobbying for national party chairs and co-chairs, and most importantly, he's going to mandate publicly financed elections for every single race. And he'll also create a system of universal small dollar vouchers that allow normal Americans to donate to federal candidates. So this is incredibly important incredibly important because the reason why we allow there to be a profit motive in healthcare in education in private prisons and basically every single sector of the economy is because capitalism like the virus that it is has made its way into the democratic process itself it has corrupted democratic institutions so that way these for-profit vultures have more staying power within the industries that offer what should be public goods, which shouldn't be profitable ventures. Like when we talk about healthcare, the mere discussion of private insurance should be foreign to everyone. The fact that it's not shows how powerful capitalism is as a force. So Bernie's trying to change all of that. And this is really, really important. Now, the one area where I would offer correction is I'd say rather than just offering, you know, legislation to publicly finance elections, add that to the constitutional amendment. I get what he's saying because if we overturn, you know, Citizens United, McCutcheon, Buckley v. Vallejo, then the courts won't really have the authority to overturn something like, you know, legislation that mandates publicly financed elections. However, a future administration or, you know, a Republican-controlled Congress can just overturn that or even a Democratic-controlled Congress, you know? So these things, if you want them to have lasting power and you want to maintain capitalism, you need to codify that into the Constitution. Otherwise, you know, you could have a really phenomenal effect in the short term, but long term, capitalism will come back and undo these changes. But with that being said, this really is, uh, this is what we need, at least for right now, right? This is a fix to uh, the issues. Because a lot of people, I think, rightfully point out that we're not going to get meaningful legislation when it comes to climate change. We're not even going to have a chance of passing Medicare for All so long as we don't get money out of politics. Because these special interests who profit from these industries are contributing to these politicians and lobbying them. So we're not going to have a chance in hell of getting these things that we want codified into law unless we get money out of politics. And what Bernie Sanders has proposed here is a plan that would allow us to curtail the money, even if it's just temporarily, but curtail the money nonetheless in politics. And that would be huge. The impact that that would have could potentially not just be life-changing, but save the planet, alter the course of history. That's how big this is. That's how substantial this is. Now, on top of that, what he's also proposing is that we ban advertising of corporate news stations if they are going to host presidential debates. Because it's absolutely absurd that presidential candidates talk about healthcare and Medicare for All, and then CNN hosting a presidential debate will cut to commercial where they advertise, you know, uh, pharmaceutical uh, companies and uh, private health insurers. That's absurd. If you're going to offer what is a public good and host presidential debates, you shouldn't be able to profit off of it. So he's proposing that. On top of that, he is going to shut the revolving door in DC once and for all by instituting a lifetime ban on lobbying. That means if you're a member of Congress, if you're a senior staffer to someone in Congress, 
You don't get to leave and become a lobbyist after serving one of these industries. Nope, he will close the door to that. Now, I want you to understand why this is so bold. It's not just bold because Bernie Sanders is trying to right one of the biggest wrongs of capitalism. It's bold because this puts him directly at odds with the DNC. He is naming them. He's saying, we're going to stop the DNC's corruption. And that puts him at odds with the institution that has the power to royally screw him again if they wanted to. But Bernie doesn't care because this is a principled position. And even if Bernie Sanders isn't successful, just elevating this issue, using his platform as a top tier presidential candidate to say, you know, we need publicly financed elections. This shifts the Overton window. This influences other candidates to adopt policies that align with this. So it's incredibly important. And Bernie Sanders, week after week, I keep saying it, he proposes a new policy that would fundamentally change America for the better, change our system, change our institutions, decommodify at least the democratic process for a while until, you know, capitalism seeps back in. But for now, this is good. This is really good. We need to shift towards democratic socialism. And you do that by moving towards policies like this, where you decommodify one industry and you decommodify another one. It's about beating back the forces of capitalism. And in a way, you can say that that is uh, incrementalism towards democratic socialism. But in the short term, this is what we have to do, right? You're not really going to get, you know, a huge fundamental change where we pass a law saying we are democratic socialism now like that's that's not something that is conceivable that's not realistic but this is realistic this is something that will have a really positive impact on the country and i absolutely applaud bernie sanders for being a leader now who is trying to curtail corruption and look he has the street cred here everyone else is doing big fundraisers or they did do big fundraisers like elizabeth warren and then transferred the money that she got from big fundraisers to her presidential campaign bernie did not do that he doesn't hold big fundraisers right he's not going to hold big fundraisers in the general unlike elizabeth warren he is saying we're going to publicly finance elections and we are going to do a constitutional amendment to overturn citizens united and we're also going to curtail the corruption within the organization that uh, controls elections that I will be in charge of, the DNC. I cannot stress how big of an impact that could potentially have on democracy. I find it really interesting that ever since Bernie Sanders proposed his own version of the wealth tax, the knuckleheads over at Fox Business News have been hammering away at why it's the worst thing ever. They've been bringing on billionaires to gripe about Bernie Sanders' wealth tax, and what's interesting is that it's evident that they don't really know how to criticize the wealth tax because this is something that will apply exclusively to elites. It's not going to apply to normal Americans because most Americans don't actually have wealth. So if you're Fox News and you want to make sure that you drive down support for a policy that doesn't necessarily apply to normal Americans, what do you do? Uh, you lie. You say that it actually does apply to them, when in actuality it will only apply to the mega-rich. And we're not just talking about people who are well-off. We're not talking about the upper class. We're talking about very, very rich people. So, former Louisiana governor and 2016 loser Bobby Jindal is going to go on Fox Business News and in an interview with Neil Cavuto explain why the wealth tax isn't actually very good for ordinary working Americans. 
look, I, I think that Wall Street and the American people have a right to be worried about these crazy left policies. There, there's a problem. You know, it sounds somewhat attractive when Elizabeth Warren says, we're not going to tax you. We're just going to tax the wealthy people. We're going to do this wealth tax. It reminds me of Louisiana populace. They have a saying down here, you know, don't tax you. Don't tax me. Tax the guy behind the tree. And what that means is, don't worry. We're not going to raise your taxes. We'll raise the other guy's taxes. The problem with these plans is eventually it always starts out that way. You know, the income tax was only going to be on the wealthy. These taxes only are going to be on wealthy people. And then before you know it, if you own a nice home, if you own your car, if you have some savings for retirement, before you know it, these wealth taxes are going to catch you as well because their appetite to spend is so large, they can't just tax the, the billionaires and the millionaires. They're going to tax everyday American working people as well. So I think people are right to be worried about these, these tax the wealth schemes and these crazy spending schemes. I mean, they're talking about tens of trillions of dollars of new spending. But I think, I also think you're right. Be careful what you wish for. I think Elizabeth Warren would be easy to beat, but I'd also, the thought of her as president absolutely terrifies me. You know, before I saw what he said and I just saw the headline, I actually expected him to use a more sophisticated argument against the wealth tax. I thought that he would, you know, use trickle down as the rationale or some platitudes about job creators, but nope. He literally just straight up said that this is going to apply to normal Americans. No, it's not. Do you want to know why? Because normal Americans don't have wealth, Bobby. And when you see Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax proposals, it's going to be really easy to uh, convince everyone why I'm right and Bobby Jindal is wrong. And as this chart from Cheyenne Gal of Business Insider demonstrates, both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's wealth taxes do not apply to households with less than $32 million in net worth. Now, if you have between $32.1 to $50 million in wealth, Bernie's plan would tax you at 1%. While Warren's plan wouldn't kick in until you have over $50 million in wealth, which is when both her and Bernie would institute a 2% wealth tax. Now, Bernie's would gradually increase, while Warren's doesn't actually jump until we get to billionaires, which is where she increases her wealth tax by one percentage point, and the highest that Bernie goes to is 8% on income over $10 billion. Now, seeing as how there's only 2,100 billionaires in existence throughout the world, to say that this wealth tax from either of the candidates will apply to, quote, American working people is a bold-faced lie. It's called a wealth tax because we are taxing wealth. People with lots and lots of wealth. So for Bobby Jindal to say that with a straight face, he's either dumb or disingenuous. Probably a little bit, a little bit of both, but I think that, you know, a policy that's literally named the wealth tax is pretty self-explanatory. It will be applicable to people with wealth. Lots and lots of wealth. Now, if you are a normal person, um, my expectation is that you saw that and you laughed because it's obviously a joke. Most people know that when we talk about a wealth tax, we're not talking about Bob who works at Walmart. We're talking about really rich people. 40% of Americans don't even have $400 in the bank for emergency expenses. 40 million workers don't even make $15 per hour. 38.1 million Americans live in poverty, and this disproportionately affects people of color. 79 million Americans have problems with medical debt. 44.7 million Americans have student loan debt. The point is, a wealth tax will not affect normal Americans in a negative way, but it will affect them in a positive way. Because if we institute a wealth tax on really, really wealthy people, then we can use the resources that we raise with that wealth tax 
to increase our social safety net, uh, increase public goods, make sure that normal Americans who don't have wealth won't go bankrupt if they have a medical emergency, make sure that you don't have to be put into death for the rest of your life if you want to go to college, if you're able to get into college. That's how the wealth tax will affect normal people. To say that this will be an increase in their taxes on their quote-unquote wealth is just laughable. It shows that Bobby Jindal doesn't really understand the economy currently and how it's tilted so heavily in favor of elites, where the tax burden has been shifted to normal Americans. So by simply saying that we're going to have a wealth tax, what we're trying to do is reshift the tax burden back to elites. Because if you make more money, if you make the most money, then you should be paying the lion's share of taxes. And that includes on wealth as well. So um, what an idiotic argument. Like I genuinely believed that Bobby Jindal would come up with some other more persuasive way to argue against this. But I mean... Uh, I don't know what I was expecting when it comes to Fox News and Republicans. The bar is very, very low. But, you know, sometimes, you know, you'll see a propagandist like Tucker Carlson make an argument that's a little bit more difficult to argue against, even though we know that he's lying. Like, you have to really disentangle components of his argument because he tries to appeal to that regular person. But, I mean, what we see here from Neil Cavuto and Bobby Jindal, this is just lazy hackery. It's so easy to just swat away. And quite frankly, it's laughable. The thought that he thinks that he's going to convince normal Americans that a wealth tax will apply to them is a joke. It's moronic. People don't have wealth. Elites have wealth. That's why we're taxing elites. That's why this exclusively applies to elites and not normal working Americans, you dumb idiot. Presidential candidate Amy Klobuchar, yes, she's still running, has been stuck at 1%, unsurprisingly, pretty much since... Uh, forever. I don't think there's been any movement for her campaign. It's just, you know, there's no there there. There's no momentum. And I'm going to play a clip for you that is going to demonstrate why. Now, first, you know, I did give her credit a few weeks back for saying that even if she's a centrist, she's not necessarily as vindictive as other centrists like Joe Biden. Meaning that, you know, she'll say, I don't support Medicare for all, and then she'll leave that there. She'll just admit that she doesn't support that policy, but she won't go out of her way to, like, actively spread misinformation and shit on policies that are progressive, like Medicare for all and whatnot. However, I'm going to have to eat my own words and take back whatever credit I gave her, because in this clip, she is going to do just that. She is going to shit on progressive policy proposals, taking shots at Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and even Andrew Yang. And when you hear her speak... Think about who she sounds like. Like, if you just took the transcript of her words and you didn't attribute the quote to her, it would be indistinguishable from any average Republican. I just don't agree with these policies, and I also think that they know that they most likely won't go through because they don't make any sense when you really take down the um, uh, veneer and get them off a bumper sticker and start looking at them, but they just keep promising it. And I just don't agree. I actually don't agree because I think it's not their best policy. They may be bold ideas. I think they're bad ideas, and there's a better way to do this. So if they know it's not going to go through, then why, why promise you? Because people like it. They like to hear that they're going to get everything free, right? They like it. That's how Andrew Yang started his speech at the a debate. It was about giving people free $1,000. So, you know, it is, and that was from his campaign directly. So that is a lot of what the discussion is right now. And I think people know that we've got to make the economy work better for them. 
And so to me, this isn't necessarily about a free college or a free degree. It's about how can you help people afford the education that they want on the path they want and have it fit with our economy. And that's why you're pulling at 1%, Amy. That right there is why you're pulling at 1%, because you're saying, you know, these policies are not good, but what are you proposing? I have not heard a single policy proposal from Amy Klobuchar throughout the entire course of this election cycle. She says, policies like student debt cancellation don't make any sense. They may be bold ideas, but I think that they are bad ideas. Well, why is it a bad idea? Because it always seems like when it comes to bailing out the banks or increasing the military budget, there's always, you know, an unlimited source of revenue for that. But when it comes to helping us, all of a sudden we need to, one, figure out how we're going to pay for it, two, um, justify it politically and economically. But why is it that the purse is always open for uh, military budgets, which you vote to increase, Amy? Why is that? Why do you have this double standard where policies that help people have to be justified, but policies that end up killing people don't have to be justified? We just pass it and that's it. Why? She also says people like to hear that they're going to get everything free. That's how Andrew Yang started his speech at the debate. So here's the thing. When you start denouncing free stuff, this is where I tell you, all right, well, it's time for you to switch parties. Jump into the Republican Party because you know damn well that these are not things that are free. Everything has a price. But when we talk about policies that are free at the point of service, education, healthcare, what we're trying to do is equalize our economy. We have an economy that benefits elites to the detriment of poor people. If you want to make it in this world, then you have to be either born into wealth or you have to get lucky. That's basically where we're at now. Americans are getting poorer and the rich are getting richer. So for you to say that we want free things, no, this is not free. It is financed by tax. That's how we raise the revenue, by increasing taxes, namely on rich people. It's about redistributing wealth. It's not about freebies, Amy. It's not about freebies. And furthermore, to even say, oh, well, free stuff is what they want, to suggest that free stuff is bad, that's an idiotic argument because something that is free is not inherently bad or evil. You just are literally stealing right-wing talking points to attack your opponents, but it's not working. Hence why you're at 1%. She also says, people know we have to make the economy work better for them. How can we help people afford the education they want and the path they want and have it fit with the economy? So that's the thing, Amy. In order to fundamentally change people's lives, we have to change the economy. Because again, this is an economy that is not designed to serve normal Americans, which is the overwhelming majority of our population. It is designed to serve elites. The tax burden has been shifted to the poor, so we get increasingly less for paying our taxes, and elites get everything. So for you to say, you know what, we need to make sure that we help people afford education. Well, what you are proposing are incrementalist band-aid solutions that aren't actually going to do anything that help normal Americans. And that's why you're not doing too good in this race. You are not doing too good in this race. In fact, a lot of centrists are face-planting. The only reason why Joe Biden is still doing okay is because he is coasting off of the, uh, you know, the Obama nostalgia. But he has been steadily declining because people hear him speak and they remember, oh, you know, our system is fundamentally broken currently and we need a change candidate. 
and that's not Joe Biden. So Amy Klobuchar, I'm not even sure why I'm wasting my time on her because she's pulling out 1%. Any candidate pulling out 1% is pretty much a waste of time because this is a race between Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Joe Biden. So I don't know why I'm talking about her, but with that being said, you're going to shit on progressive policies. We're going to take the time to shit on you because if you're not proposing anything to help people, then shut up about the people who are actually proposing policies to help normal Americans. So let's just acknowledge the obvious. Donald Trump is a terrible president. He is a mentally unstable person. He creates a lot of chaos and political instability. I get someone's instinct to dislike Donald Trump and to not want him to be president. Trust me, I, I feel it too. I don't like Donald Trump. I want him gone as soon as possible. With that being said, though, I feel as if it's really important, and I shouldn't have to say this, uh, that we don't go out of our way to rehabilitate the destructive legacies of past presidents who were objectively worse than Donald Trump. So I understand that, like, you know, Donald Trump may make you yearn for the days when we had a more normal president, at least when it comes to their mental faculties and ability to govern and just acting like an adult. However, you don't have to normalize someone like George W. Bush just so, you know, the juxtaposition between Trump and Bush seems that much more absurd. You can just say Trump is bad and not rehabilitate George W. Bush, but unfortunately, that is what a lot of liberals, namely liberal elites, are doing. In order to resist Donald Trump and make him look bad, they're trying to make it seem as if Bush wasn't that bad, when in actuality, Bush was far more destructive than Donald Trump. I'm still holding a grudge against Ellen, who used to be, you know, an LGBTQ plus hero to me, because she invited George W. Bush on her show, and they were dancing, they were getting all buddy-buddy, you know, he uh, gave her a kiss on the cheek, and that was really destructive. She basically told all of her viewers that George W. Bush wasn't so bad, because look at Donald Trump now. So we should have been thankful for the days of George W. Bush. That was problematic but you know i chalked it up to all right she's just apolitical she doesn't know shit about politics but that wasn't a one-off because over the weekend there was an image of her that went viral hanging out with george w bush at a football game you know it was as if 2001 through 2009 never happened i guess she uh is not recalling what happened and how he attacked her identity as president and on top of that actress rosie o'donnell tweeted out support for bush saying how comforting to see a real president never thought his image would move me so come on republicans call bullshit on trump save democracy this ain't no movie that sentiment alone like if we were just friends and i were talking to rosie o'donnell and she told me that i think she was an idiot i'd probably call her stupid for saying that but it's not like they're just thinking this they are actively broadcasting to the world rosie o'donnell just told her 1.1 million twitter followers that you know george w bush is a real president he's great donald trump is bad george bush is good and whatever problems you had with george w bush it pales in comparison to the issues that we have with donald trump well, guess what? That is dead fucking wrong. And like, I can't help but think, what is wrong with liberals? Trump has broken their brains beyond repair. And especially to see elites, liberals, members from the LGBTQ community like Ellen and Rosie O'Donnell say this. It's just, it's mind boggling to me. He doesn't like you. You're gay. He hates you because you are gay. Period. And we're not even scratching the surface. 
George W. Bush destroyed the Eighth Amendment, violated international law by torturing human beings. Torturing them. This is the man that signed the Patriot Act into law, which eroded the Fourth Amendment. Okay? Eroded the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. He was the architect of the drone wars that Obama ended up expanding, which led to thousands of civilians dying in Pakistan, Yemen, Afghanistan, Somalia, Iraq. This is the man who has the blood of one million dead Iraqis on his hands. His regime change effort there literally catalyzed a bloody civil war. And we are still fucking there. And you're saying, this is a great person. This is a real president. What the fuck is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? Are you out of your mind? This murderer is a good president? The only feeling that you should get when you see George W. Bush roaming around freely, enjoying football games, is rage. Rage at the fact that he's not rotting in prison for the rest of his life. He should be at the Hague right now in a fucking jail cell until the day he dies because of all the blood he has on his hands. But yet you're hanging out with him, honoring him just to get Donald Trump. And on top of that, the idiocy of people like Ellen and Rosie O'Donnell is honestly mind-boggling to me. He literally ran his entire 2004 campaign against you, against you. Do you not understand that? He ran a campaign on banning same-sex marriage. And no, he didn't just want to pass a law like, you know, the Defense of Marriage Act where you ban it federally. He wanted a constitutional amendment so you could never, ever marry your wife who attended that football game with you, Ellen. Do you not get this? In fact, I'm going to play a little clip because I guess that liberals who are older than me who should remember this more clearer uh, need a history lesson. This is what he said in a radio address about gay marriage. He wanted a constitutional amendment to ban your marriage, Ellen. Today, I want to explain why I support the Marriage Protection Amendment and why I'm urging Congress to pass it and send it to the states for ratification. Marriage is the most enduring and important human institution honored and encouraged in all cultures and by every religious faith. Ages of experience have taught us that the commitment of a husband and a wife to love and to serve one another promotes the welfare of children and the stability of society. Marriage cannot be cut off from its cultural, religious, and natural roots without weakening this good influence on society. Government, by recognizing and protecting marriage, serves the interests of all. In our free society, people have the right to choose how they live their lives. And in a free society, decisions about such a fundamental social institution as marriage should be made by the people, not by the courts. The American people have spoken clearly on this issue, both through their representatives and at the ballot box. In 1996, Congress approved the Defense of Marriage Act by overwhelming bipartisan majorities in both the House and Senate and President Clinton signed it into law. Unfortunately, activist judges and some local officials have made an aggressive attempt to redefine marriage in recent years. Since 2004, state courts in Washington, California, Maryland, and New York have overturned laws protecting marriage in those states. And in Nebraska, a federal judge overturned a state constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriage. These court decisions could have an impact on our whole nation. The Defense of Marriage Act declares that no state is required to accept another state's definition of marriage. If that act is overturned by activist courts, then marriages recognized in one city or state might have to be recognized as marriages everywhere else. 
That would mean that every state would have to recognize marriages redefined by judges in Massachusetts or local officials in San Francisco, no matter what their own laws or state constitutions say. This national question requires a national solution, and on an issue of such profound importance, that solution should come from the people, not the courts. A constitutional amendment will put a decision that is critical to American families and American society in the hands of the American people, which is exactly where it belongs. Democracy, not court orders, should decide the future of marriage in America. I mean, what more do you need? What more do you need? Has he even made a public apology for saying that? That he wanted a constitutional amendment so same-sex couples could never ever be able to get married? Has he ever apologized for that? Has he ever at least even showed like an ounce of remorse for all of the Iraqis that he murdered? Both directly and indirectly? I don't think so. This is what American politics has devolved into, where because we dislike Donald Trump, we're going to normalize and rehabilitate the destructive legacy of a murderer who should be rotting in prison right now. The fact that he is free, let me repeat, the fact that he has freedom shows that America does not take human rights seriously because he should be in prison where murderers belong. You know, for a second, it seemed like there was a glimmer of hope that there would actually be justice in the Botham John case. Because when we learned that his murderer was convicted of murder and not, you know, a lesser charge such as manslaughter, you know, there was just a moment of us being hopeful that for once there would be justice in a case where a police officer kills an unarmed black American. However, when we learned that Amber Geiger was only sentenced to 10 years, well, that's a sentence that we'd expect if she were in fact convicted of manslaughter. And when you factor in the likelihood that she'll probably be let out early for good behavior, it's safe to say that there was no justice in the Botham John case. And to make matters exponentially worse, well, a key witness in this case, 28-year-old Joshua Brown, was murdered over the weekend. Now, Mark Ramirez and Jennifer Emily of Dallas News reports a key witness in Amber Geiger's murder trial was shot and killed Friday evening at an apartment complex near Dallas Medical District, authorities said. Joshua Brown, a neighbor of Botham Jean and Geiger at the Southside Flats apartments, was slain about 10.30 p.m. in the 4600 block of Cedar Springs Road. Brown, 28, lived across the hall from John and testified about the night he was killed. A preliminary investigation shows Brown was shot in the back and thigh, a government official said on condition of anonymity. So the overall takeaway is that a key witness in a murder trial was shot and killed. This information is so difficult to process. It's like this is you know, a mafia movie that we're watching play out. Now, I want to play a clip report from CNN. Um, they kind of go over some general details about this story, but then they gloss over something that is really, really uh, fundamentally important to this case towards the end. Let's see if you can catch it. Last week, Geiger was convicted of killing Botham Jean after walking into his apartment in 2018. She claimed to have mistaken his apartment for hers and thought he was an intruder. 
On the witness stand, 10 days before his own shooting death outside his home, Brown testified he heard the shots and saw Geiger outside his apartment. Brown got emotional, recounting, hearing his neighbor's voice from time to time. Lee Merritt, a civil rights attorney representing the Jean family, said on social media Brown lived in constant fear of gun violence and that his death, quote, underscores the reality of the black experience in America. Merritt also said Brown deserves the same justice that he sought to ensure for the Jean family. Investigators have released few details on Brown's death, only the witnesses heard gunshots and that they observed a silver four-door sedan speeding away from the scene. Police have not said if the murder is in any way connected to the Geiger proceedings. And Dallas police continue to investigate Brown's death. They are hoping that somebody who potentially saw something or heard something will actually reach out to them. And that right there is the issue, right there. In case you missed it, the Dallas Police Department will be conducting the investigation. Unacceptable. Unacceptable. Because um, we don't know what happened here, okay? If we are using common sense, we'd expect this to be foul play. We would expect that this is probably retaliation because he gave a testimony that facilitated the conviction of Amber Geiger. We don't know if someone within the police department decided to uh, murder him in retaliation to send a witness or to send a message to other witnesses across the country. Hey, this is what's going to happen to you if you testify against a police officer. We don't know. I'm just speculating. I have no evidence that that's the case. But the point is that because there is a chance that this is possible or even likely there needs to be an independent investigation into the murder of joshua brown we cannot expect the dallas police department to investigate themselves effectively and efficiently and if they find wrongdoing hold their own accountable we can't expect that we cannot expect that so of course there needs to be an independent investigation and um federal authorities need to get involved this is no longer an issue where you know the Dallas Police Department can investigate and that will suffice. Unacceptable. A key witness was murdered here. This is just shocking news. Like, every single American in this country should be shaken to the core over this. This is absolutely insanity. It's insanity. I don't, I don't know what to say. Two men killed, murdered, the second one, most likely because he was a key witness. But again, we can't confirm this. There's no evidence. It just is very, very suspicious. And if you don't suspect foul play, then, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. It's very, um, it's very odd that the key witness, 10 days after giving a testimony that led to the conviction of a police officer, is murdered. What do you say? You know, I, I don't know what to say. There's no words. There's no words in this situation. All right, so let's talk about Q3 fundraising halls for the 2020 Democratic Party primary contenders. Bernie Sanders, of course, had the best haul, as many of you know by now. But Elizabeth Warren and Andrew Yang also did fantastic. In fact, Andrew Yang did the best, at least with regard to greatest percentage increase. But let's get into all of that. So Bernie Sanders raised the most out of all the candidates with a whopping $25.3 million dollars 
followed by Elizabeth Warren with 24.6 million. And then Joe Biden actually came in fourth place with even Pete Buttigieg surpassing him. Now, that is obviously not good. He's a former vice president. He has essentially been the front runner since he entered the race. So this is embarrassing, and it gets even worse when you factor in percentages, because Joe Biden had a 30% decrease, while (laughs) Buttigieg had a 23% decrease. Meanwhile, Bernie Sanders saw a 33% increase, and Yang saw a 257% increase. So Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Andrew Yang all are seeing really great news here. Joe Biden is probably the worst off. And if I'm on Team Joe Biden right now, if I worked for the campaign, now is the time when I'd officially start panicking. And it's not just because his fundraising was really low in Q3, but it's also because he is technically no longer the frontrunner. He has just been surpassed by Elizabeth Warren, albeit marginally, but nonetheless, she is ahead of him. It's still a statistical tie, but he is officially no longer the front runner. Now you also see a little bit of a dip here for Bernie Sanders. That definitely makes my heart hurt. But if I had to guess why that's happening, I'd say it's probably because of the heart attack that he had. Maybe that, you know, hurt him, but he could regain at the debate, you know, and Elizabeth Warren also saw similar dips and has since increased. So I'm not going to count Bernie Sanders out just yet. You know, the thing about Biden starting to fall as the front runner is that there were a lot of polls back from April, May that showed that a lot of his supporters would go to Bernie Sanders. So we don't know yet. We could look at, you know, a two-way race between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren still. Right now, it seems like it's going to be between um, Elizabeth Warren and uh, Joe Biden, but it's still super early. We know that there's a clear top three, Warren, Sanders, and Biden, and Andrew Yang, He's steadily rising, so I wouldn't count him out. And, um, you know, what's interesting to me is that we started to see inklings from the Biden campaign like a month or so ago that they were starting to lower their expectations, at least when it comes to Iowa, because, you know, they started to grasp the reality that he may not win Iowa. But now donors are starting to panic and they are really panicking because they have invested now millions upon millions of dollars into Joe Biden and he's flailing and it doesn't seem like that's going to change anytime soon since his fundraising numbers are down you know since the revenue is obviously drying up because billionaires are starting to max out this raises questions about the longevity of his campaign and whether or not it will be able to sustain itself because you need money to keep a campaign going. And he got a nice rush at the beginning, but now everyone who wanted to donate to him has maxed out and now he's left with uh, really nothing. So this is serious because when your donors start to panic, that's when your campaign starts to panic. And as Amy Parnes of The Hill writes, Democratic donors are increasingly expressing frustration with Joe Biden's presidential campaign, saying he's failed to make a clear rationale for why he's running for the White House. Donors complain that a string of verbal gaffes and inconsistent debate performances have contributed to a sense of worry about the strength of his candidacy. There's also some dissatisfaction with how the Biden camp has responded to a new series of attacks from President Trump, who has seen his own calls for Ukraine to investigate the former vice president turn into the impetus for an impeachment inquiry in the House. Look, let's be honest, he's a weak frontrunner, one major 
major donor said. The dismal poll numbers have added to a sense that the former vice president's campaign is on the decline, while Warren's in particular is on the rise. A lot of us are really concerned, another Democratic bundler said. We think Biden is the strongest out of the lot, but he hasn't exactly shown that he can play the part yet. Democratic strategist Brad Bannon said Biden's poor numbers suggest donors lack confidence in his campaign. Big money people who might favor Biden are investors, not gamblers or zealots. So the money is drying up, Bannon concluded. Warren and Sanders have both gobbled up small dollar donors at a rate the Biden camp hasn't been able to contend with, putting more pressure on the former vice president's campaign to win support from big donors. So I love this story because the thing about relying on big donors is that, you know, there's a finite amount of big donors. However, when it comes to raising money by small grassroots donors, they're not going to max out anytime soon. Like me, I am donating $27 per month to Bernie Sanders' campaign. If I get an email where he says, look, we need help, we need to you know, boost our Q4 fundraising totals, I can easily chip in an extra $50 because I am in no way approaching that $2,700 threshold, right? And most Bernie Sanders supporters are the same. They can donate you know, a dollar here, $10 there, $19, $27 here and there, and he'll be okay. But when it comes to Joe Biden, once you max out, you max out. You know, there's a ceiling. And that's what we're seeing. He's running into a ceiling here. And now there's not really anywhere left for him to go. He's not gaining any momentum. Um, in fact, the impeachment inquiry, where Biden's name has come up a lot, has raised questions about his corruption. Because let's face it, Joe Biden is an incredibly corrupt individual. And while it's not necessarily the case that he pressured, you know, uh, Ukraine to fire a prosecutor so that way they'd stop investigating Hunter Biden because he wasn't under investigation to begin with, that's still a conflict of interest. The fact that your son was earning that much money, that's nepotism, that's corruption. But Kyle Kalinske, to his credit of Secular Talk, did a great segment explaining how how is Joe Biden so incompetent? How are Democrats so incompetent that they can't easily spin, you know, Hunter Biden and nepotism into a story about Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner and their nepotism? They're incompetent. So Joe Biden does not know how to run a competent campaign. His team is absolutely now grasping and he's going down and um, he's no longer the front runner. There are a lot of holes in the sinking ship that is known as the Joe Biden and um once the donors lose confidence, you're pretty much done in D.C. if that's what you're going to rely on. Because again, if he was sustaining his campaign with small grassroots donors, that would be an entirely different story. But since that's not the case, since he has to beg for money in the Hamptons to billionaires and elites, well, um, there's only, only so many elites that are going to be willing to donate to you. And if they don't think that you are gaining any momentum then even if they didn't max out, they might not necessarily feel inclined to donate to you. And, you know, Pete Buttigieg is kind of running into the same problem where he was in the Hamptons begging rich people for money. He has the most billionaire donors. And now he is struggling to raise money. But you see people like Andrew Yang, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren all excel because they are not begging billionaires for money. So that's really interesting, and it's really an important story. Joe Biden is officially no longer the frontrunner, and now that donors are starting to jump ship, that is an indication that the ship is sinking altogether. 
Um, so this is incredibly important. What we need to do now as Bernie Sanders supporters is drive home the argument about Bernie Sanders' electability because a lot of people who were supporting Joe Biden, they did it, yes, because of name recognition and nostalgia for the Obama years, but a large part of the reason why they support Joe Biden was because they believed that he is the most electable, and currently polls do show that. But, you know, you can look at polls and head-to-head matchups between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, but understand that the writing is on the wall. Hillary Clinton was another moderate that was polling as well at this point in the race against the Republican, and she lost. So if you want someone who's going to win, if you want someone who's going to be the most electable, I think it's clear that that is Bernie Sanders. So now we need to capitalize on Joe Biden's sinking ship, you know, what is his loss should be our game if we play our cards right. So we need to go after those Biden voters and explain to them that if you really want someone who's going to beat Donald Trump and that's your number one priority, then Bernie Sanders, he is receiving the most financial contributions in those districts that went from Obama to Trump in 2016. That's really important if you care about beating Donald Trump. So if we make that electability argument loud and proudly right now, we can have Bernie Sanders uh, see a rise. And if it comes down to a race between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, that would be great right? Because even though Elizabeth Warren is no Bernie Sanders, she's far better than the rest of the field. And, you know, Andrew Yang is not going anywhere anytime soon. So if we get to a race between Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Andrew Yang, um, I'm not going to be too mad about that. I'm still going to back Bernie 100%. But, you know, it's not like we're choosing between the worst and then someone who is worse than the worst. We're choosing between options that are actually pretty solid. Um, and that's good. So to see Joe Biden dip, uh, not only in the polls, but, um, to see his donors lose confidence, this is a fantastic sign and it's good for America because if he wins, there's a good chance that Donald Trump gets a second term. And I get that I'm basing this off of, you know, my own speculation, my own feelings currently, because the numbers don't back that up. But if you read the room and know that America we still are in this anti-establishment era where we don't trust elites. Then know that Donald Trump will, you know, use that crooked Joe Biden line, the same thing that was really effective against Hillary Clinton, and he will beat Joe Biden over the head with it. And if Joe Biden were competent, he could easily flip it and make Donald Trump seem as if he's more corrupt because Donald Trump is, in fact, more corrupt. But, you know, I have no faith in Democrats and Joe Biden to do that. So the best case scenario is Joe Biden goes down in the primary, and we see someone rise who can actually beat Donald Trump, and that's Bernie Sanders. But if Elizabeth Warren is able to surpass Donald Trump or Joe Biden in the primary, that's good news too. Then we really make the case why Bernie Sanders is better than Elizabeth Warren. But to see Joe Biden sink ship like this so quickly, this is good news. He's not out of it yet, so don't discount him just yet. Don't, don't you know, overlook him. He's still a threat, but understand that this is a clear sign that the end may be near for uh, Biden 2020. And that is great news for the country. Yeah. Listen, it doesn't matter what Bernie Sanders accomplishes. It doesn't matter how well he does. Corporate media will never give him the praise that he deserves. They just won't. But there's a very specific reason for that. And the reason why they always overlook him and dismiss him is because 
he's a threat to them. Them dismissing Bernie Sanders in every way, shape, or form, that's just the confirmation that we need that he is, in fact, the real deal. We're never going to see, you know, a glowing puff piece on CNN about Bernie Sanders. We're not going to see a ton of glowing articles written about him by these elitist DC pundits. But that just means that he truly is an outsider and he's going to change the system. Um, and it's really important because even if it may be discouraging to see, you know, the candidate that you support not really be taken very seriously by mainstream media, even if it's expected, you know, it can still feel a little bit demoralizing. But in an interview with The Hill, Nina Turner explained exactly why this is the case. It's because Bernie Sanders is a threat. And let me just say everything that she says here is so profound. Like hearing her speak about this, it actually gave me chills because she has a way of saying things that it just makes it click. Like she, unlike perhaps any other speaker I've ever heard, has a way of just making me feel energized and inspired. And everything she said here was so on point. So this is what she said in response to a question from Crystal Ball about why Bernie Sanders isn't taken seriously by the media and why they always, you know, downplay and uh, otherwise dismiss him. Yesterday on the show, I talked about the fact that, you know, after that unbelievable quarter, $25 million, beating the whole field, yes. most individual donations in presidential history, all of that, Washington Post writes an article, a news article, not opinion, a news article saying Bernie Sanders' campaign has no momentum. No secret, we've covered the, you know, the sort of I would say contempt that much of the media has yes. for the campaign. Where, do, where does that come from? What's your analysis of, of why that persistently is the case? The system is not just going to bend to Senate. Senator Sanders is a threat to the system. That's why. Mm -hmm. And the system is not just going to bend on its own to his will, the will of making this system work for the greatest number of people. So you got to make it do it. In the words of Bre Brother Frederick Douglass, power can seize nothing without a demand. And so because the system, the senator has been so transparent about, hey, I'm coming for you. I mean, he has, even has an anti-endorser mm -hmm. list, as you know. They refuse to give him the credit that he deserves in his image. Hell, the Democratic Party and all of the Democratic candidates that are running right now wouldn't even have a platform without Senator Bernard Sanders. They all are, to some extent, whether they want to admit it or not, are preaching from the gospel, coming, reading from the gospel according to Senator Bernard Sanders. Yeah. And that is a good thing. The senator always says it's not about him, it is about us, and he really does mean that. But when you have somebody that's bold enough to say Medicare for all, that we should stop commodifying health care, saying that people should have a $15 an hour minimum wage, and not just saying it though, but on the front lines with the fight for 15, on the front line with Amazon workers and Disney workers, over 400,000 people get a raise, a living wage, not because he's in, not because he holds the seat, but because he's right there out there with the people. If he can do all that before he becomes president, imagine what we could do. I can hear him saying this yeah. now. <laughs> imagine what we can do yeah. once he gets in the office. So it's just a flat out contempt mm -hmm. for a man who said quite clearly that I'm coming for you. I am going to challenge a corrupt system that puts its weight on the everyday people of this nation. You know, I was just in South Carolina and I, I marched with the fight for 15 workers there and it was McDonald's workers. And I remember having a pillow side with a young lady, her name is Tanya, she's in her 20s and she started crying to me about how she works two jobs and she's working as hard as she can. She's doing the best that she can, but she still can't make it. And she said, you know, I'm single. I don't have any children, but I'm trying my best. Mm -hmm. So you look at Tanya, who's a single, 
young mm-hmm. woman. Right. And then you look at women who do have children and then women and men. I'm not genderizing this. Right, sure. What I'm saying is that people are really suffering right, right now and they are calling on a champion who won't equivocate, who won't say one thing on the debate stage, another thing when they get off, won't say one thing during the primary and then yeah, do another right. thing in the general. And right. that champion is Senator Bernie Sanders. So to the system, he's coming for them mm-hmm. and they should be afraid. Well, Nina Turner is absolutely amazing. Every single thing she said there is 100% on point. Bernie Sanders is the real deal. And it's evident that, you know, if you are in this elite bubble, you benefit from the status quo and you don't want to change the status quo, then uh, when you see a candidate who's directly saying, I'm coming after you, I'm going to raise your taxes, of course, they're not going to take kindly to that because everyone who's in these DC bubbles, you know, the CNN, MSNBC, Fox News pundits, they all are multimillionaires, right? They all attend the same cocktail parties. It's a big club and you ain't in it as, uh, you know, uh, George Carlin would say. But she explains that it's because he's the real deal. She says, Bernie Sanders is a threat to the system, and the system isn't just going to bend to his will. Exactly. They're not just going to all of a sudden recognize that Bernie Sanders has managed to change the game by setting a new standard for the way that presidential campaigns raise money. They're not going to acknowledge him for that. They're not going to give him credit for floating a wealth tax before Elizabeth Warren. So what do they do? Well, you know, if you're the Washington Post, you just say Bernie Sanders now channels Warren and introduces a wealth tax. They're never going to give him the credit that he deserves because they know that he is a threat. So they're not going to bend to his will. He's going to make them bend to his will. They're not going to do that willingly. And this is obvious, but the way that Nina Turner says it, it just, it's... It makes so much sense. She also says, because Bernie Sanders has been so transparent about saying he's coming for them, he even released an anti-endorsement list. They refused to give him the credit that he deserves. That's also true. And here's what she said about other 2020 Democrats that I love. They are all, to some extent, whether they admit it or not, preaching from the gospel, reading from the gospel, according to Senator Bernard Sanders. That is precisely it. When you watch these debates... These national debates, a lot of the conversations that we are having, they've been catalyzed by Bernie Sanders. The only reason why we're even debating, you know, healthcare reform within the confines of, you know, single payer versus Obamacare plus something else is because of Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders was, you know, a shit stirrer in 2016 and he still is. And the most profound, most important thing that he did by running against Hillary Clinton in 2016 is yank that Overton window to the left. It's still, you know, moving slowly, but he gave it a really hard tug. And because of what he did, because of his effort, he reshaped political discourse in this country. So we're not just talking about, you know, should we just, you know, uh, do a couple of fixes to the Affordable Care Act? Um, no, we're talking about full on single-payer health care. This is all because of Bernie Sanders. People like Kamala Harris have to devise plans that are not Medicare for All, that are literally called Medicare for All, because they know that if you want to get elected, you need to be progressive. Bernie Sanders has just substantially changed political discourse, not just in the Democratic Party, but nationally. I mean, think about this. When Bernie Sanders was running on Medicare for All in 2016, 2015 as well, 
there was not majority support among the general population for Medicare for All. You know, Democrats, Democratic Party voters, the base, they always supported it. But Bernie Sanders changed that. He shifted support for this. Now most people want Medicare for All. And some polls show that a majority of Republicans want Medicare for All. He's not going to get credit for that. Now also, she talks about, you know, all the things that Bernie Sanders managed to accomplish as a senator by getting, you know, Amazon and Disney workers a living wage. And he did this just by putting pressure on these companies. He literally subverted the legislative process. So he demonstrated that he is a force to be reckoned with. And she said here something that gave me chills. Imagine what we can do if he becomes president. And that really, that should inspire a lot of optimism, right? Because Bernie Sanders was able to raise the minimum wage of Amazon workers without a law being passed. Without a single vote, he got that accomplished just by putting pressure on them. So he already has them scared. Imagine if he were president, what we could accomplish. Maybe we could actually get Medicare for all. Maybe we could actually get money out of politics. If Bernie Sanders is already this influential when he's not president, when he's just the senator, imagine what he could do as president, what we could do as president. That line right there, that was remarkable. And I'm so glad that she said it. And I've made a, like a similar statement before. But again, there's something about the way that, you know, uh, Nina Turner says it and the way that she frames it that just, it's so much more powerful. And it makes so much sense. Now, finally, she said, people are really suffering right now. And they're calling on a champion who won't equivocate, who won't say one thing on a debate stage and another thing when they get off won't say one thing during the primary and then do another thing in the general. And that champion is Senator Bernie Sanders. So to me, when she says something like that, even though she didn't like cite anyone's name, um, she's touching on the frustration that I feel with Elizabeth Warren, because I've always been a fan of Elizabeth Warren. Of course, we don't have to rehash this, but, but in 2016, I lost a lot of faith in her. Um, but you know, Elizabeth Warren, she was wavering on Medicare for all after endorsing it. But then at the debate, she came out swinging. You know, I support Medicare for all. And she raised her hand to get rid of private insurance. But then, you know, after the debate was over, she was saying, I support, you know, uh, I support other plans too. This isn't a contest. So that frustration there, it, it really irritates me. Because on one hand, you know, I have to give politicians credit for actually supporting Medicare for all. But at the same time, when you have someone in the race like Bernie Sanders, where I don't have to question whether or not he's committed to Medicare for all, you know, um, why would you opt for someone who there are these open questions? Will this person actually fight for Medicare for all? They say they support it. They say that it's a great idea. But when push comes to shove, when the insurance companies start raining down on them, start lobbying against them, who's going to stand strong? Is that going to be anyone but Bernie Sanders? No, I don't think so. And that's the difference between Bernie Sanders and everyone else in this race. He's the only candidate who has walked the walk. He's the only candidate who I trust is going to fight for Medicare for all because he has had this same position and he's never wavered on it. Not once, ever. So everything that, you know, Nina Turner is saying here is music to my ears. You know, making that point about the uh, general election pivot saying one thing in the primary and then something different in the uh, general. You know, I can't help but think that's a reference to Hillary Clinton shifting to the center 
in uh, the general election, picking Tim Kaine as VP. Look, we just want someone who's real. Part of the reason why younger voters don't come out and support politicians is because they really don't feel like they can trust someone. Why would you, you know, um, jump through the hoops that you need to jump through in certain states when there's voter ID laws and voter suppression, closed primaries? Why would you go through all of that if you really don't feel confident that the person you're wasting all this time, what feels to them like a waste of time voting for, isn't actually willing to fight for you? So we need someone like Bernie Sanders who is trustworthy, who can instill confidence in voters that he will actually fight for him, that he's worth the time that they are going to put in voting or caucusing for him. And um, it's Bernie. And nobody can really illustrate how that's the case. Nobody can really make a better case than Nina Turner. I think even she's better at making the case for Bernie than Bernie is in some instances. She's just fantastic. And he's absolutely the luckiest candidate to have her on his team because she is fantastic and um the more i hear from her the more fired up i get so she needs to be on television she needs to be the face of the sanders campaign because she is absolutely phenomenal at what she does marcus ely of status coup interviewed a couple of donald trump's most loyal supporters at trump stock and obviously you know if you attend an event that's literally called trump stock then um, needless to say, you are going to be part of his core base of support, the most loyal Trump supporters and dedicated supporters who will never leave him no matter what, period. And, you know, even though this is a really small sample size, Marcus just is going to talk to three people here in the clip that I'm going to show you. Um, it confirmed that, one, Donald Trump's support base, they're very culty. This is about his personality. Um, and they're never going to leave him no matter what. They don't care about policy. But what it also confirmed is something that is deeply disturbing. Like, the extent to which they will remain loyal and committed to Donald Trump is terrifying, quite frankly. So, this is what they're going to say when Marcus asks them about the prospect of impeachment and what they'd be willing to do to defend Donald Trump. Worst case scenario, Democrats impeach Trump and he says, I'm not, no way, I'm not leaving office. This is a fake, uh, a fake Russiagate hoax and I'm not leaving office. Let's start a civil war. What, um, what, what would you do in that case? Okay. To me, the reality is Trump's never going to get impeached. That's all a distraction that they're creating to take the eyes off of Biden. That's not what we're talking about. I get that. So I don't see Trump as being impeached, period. But worst case scenario, I'm pretty sure I would be one of the ones. I, I got health issues, so I'd be more detriment in the front lines. But I'd be one, one of the ones that back at 110 percent. Um, the president has recently tweeted uh, about the um, about there being a civil war like fracture if he gets impeached. What do you what do you what do you as a Trump supporter um, think about that? I think the Democrats that are raising all the scandals should be tried for treason and hung from the Capitol Dome. Pure, flat out and simple. So if they want to play games, OK, they have violated their oath of office in supporting the president. They need to be hung for treason. So their oath of office includes supporting the president in all things every time yes uh, uh, there can come a time 
because this this country is fractured. I mean, it's very fractured. That there's going to be brother fight against brother. Yikes. That is uh, chilling, to say the least. Because we're having these idiotic conversations about the far left and socialism and how much of a threat people like me are to America. But you just saw three Donald Trump supporters advocate for violence if Donald Trump is impeached. The first guy said that he would back a civil war 110% if Donald Trump were to get impeached. Think about that. These people purport to be patriotic. You know, they're loyal. They stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. But here he is saying, if the person who I support is impeached, yeah, I support a civil war. I support killing my fellow Americans, murdering them if they go against Daddy Trump. To say that that's demented is an understatement. There's really no way to characterize this other than pure delusion. But this is the thinking of at least a couple of Donald Trump supporters. The next guy said that the Democrats who are raising all of these scandals should be tried for treason and hung from the Capitol Dome. So he's literally advocating for Donald Trump's political opponents to be killed, to be murdered. I mean, think about this. To be delusional to that point, where you think that anyone who's against Donald Trump should be murdered, his political opponents in Congress, you have drunken the Kool-Aid. You're, you're too far gone. I mean, think about this. Donald Trump is a criminal. He's in violation of the Emoluments Clause. There are various conflicts of interest. He's still profiting off of his businesses. You know, more than 10 instances of obstruction of justice in the Mueller report, asking foreign governments to investigate his political opponents, the Ukraine call. I mean, this man is a criminal. But in spite of all of that, they're committed to the cause, and anyone who's against Donald Trump should be hung. Jesus Christ. Think about this. Did you hear any Democrats during the uh, Bill Clinton impeachment proceedings, during the Benghazi proceedings, uh, investigations, call for Republicans to be hung or executed? But yet, it's the left who's the problem in this country. Yeah. And think about what else he said. He believes that... Well, even though, you know, members of Congress swore an oath to protect the Constitution, well, it doesn't matter that Donald Trump violated the Constitution brazenly. They are supposed to remain loyal to Donald Trump. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh because this is uh, terrifying, but it's, um, it's crazy. What else do you do other than laugh at this? And then the final guy said, there's going to be brothers fighting against brothers because the country is divided. They're willing to resort to violence if Donald Trump is impeached. At least these people are. Now, do I believe that there will literally be a civil war if Donald Trump is impeached? No, I don't believe that that's the case. But the fact that some of Donald Trump's most loyal supporters condone the prospect of civil war in and of itself says a lot about this base of support, that they are too far gone. 
No matter how far to the right you shift, if you are a Democratic member of Congress, you are never going to win these people over. They have drunk in the Kool-Aid. They will never be on your side. They see you as the other. They've dehumanized you literally to the point where they believe if you go against Daddy Trump, you should be executed. I think that what this means, the implications of this are stop trying to win these people over. You're never going to win them over. They're crazy. These people are cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. These are wackadoos. You shouldn't be trying to pander to them to win votes. Anyone who likes to invoke the both sides argument when you have one side fighting for social democracy and equality and healthcare for everyone and this side saying they're going to you know fight in a civil war would support a civil war if Trump was impeached. There's no both sides. Any both side argument is, you know, a false equivalence. These people are downright fucking insane. And, you know, these videos, they just demonstrate what was obvious to us. Donald Trump's base of, su of support is not driven by policy or political ideology. It is driven by commitment to Donald Trump and maybe a commitment to just owning the libs. Now, does this mean that all of Donald Trump's base of support is like this? No, because there are some individuals who are more policy-minded who maybe were in the Rust Belt and they didn't trust, you know, Democrats or Hillary Clinton, so they decided to vote for Donald Trump and they were duped by him. But, you know, this is just the segment of Trump's base that's the most vocal, the most loyal who will never leave him no matter what. Donald Trump, as he once said, could kill somebody and they'd still, you know, be committed to him. Um, I'm paraphrasing and butchering that. It's an old quote, but um, these are those people. They will never leave him no matter what. Um, so it's terrifying. You hate to see this kind of stuff, but um, this, is how, um, this is how low people are willing to go. They're willing to say, if you impeach my president, I'm 110% behind a civil war. Like... Hypothetically speaking, let's say Bernie Sanders was elected president and he was impeached. There's really no grounds for impeachment, but Republicans got two-thirds of the Senate to vote to convict and remove him from office. I would be upset, but would I condone a civil war? Of course I wouldn't. That's literally saying that I'm okay with Americans, my fellow Americans, dying if they disagree with me. Possibly family members who disagree with me politically. I'm okay with going to war with them, literally, over that. Fuck out of here. And, you know, this isn't the first indication that Donald Trump's supporters were really deranged. There was one video where um, there was a conference. I can't remember the specific details about it, but Steve Bannon attended a conference, and one of Donald Trump's supporters said, look, I never thought I'd be in support of, you know, a dictator or authoritarianism, but in the event we ever fall to a dictatorship in America, I would want Donald Trump to be the person who did it. I mean, when you see this, this is really a sign that we need to do better to educate people so we don't have people like this who are this deranged, right? If you are going to follow politics and be involved in politics, then you should be driven by a political ideology and policy goals, not dedication to this clown like donald trump so it's sad it's uh pathetic but it's not that surprising sadly i wish that i could say i'm you know shocked by this but i'm not actually for someone who just had a heart attack last week bernie sanders looks absolutely incredible in fact he looks radiant like he looks like he's doing really well so if you were worried about his health just seeing him in action i mean that should assure you that 
he's going to be okay. And when I first saw him, you know, do post heart attack interviews, I could see that he looked great. However, if you are a CNN graphics editor, then you don't necessarily want to make Bernie Sanders look good. So maybe you go out of your way to make him look worse. Maybe you Photoshop blemishes on his face and uh, red spots. Or maybe you up the saturation and literally change the color hue of your video to make him look more red than he is in actuality because it kind of seems like that's what CNN did. And as someone who edits videos on a daily basis, I'll tell you that we are constantly trying to adjust the contrast, adjust the hue, to make the videos appear more natural and to make them more crisp, make the colors pop more, right? Um, so you're not going to put out a video without adjusting these things if you're a professional. I mean, amateurs, sure. But for a multi-billion dollar company like CNN to put out you know, a video where Bernie Sanders almost looks purple, that is incredibly embarrassing. Now, I have no evidence that CNN did this intentionally, but, you know, if they didn't do this intentionally, then they should still be embarrassed because to have a candidate look like he's purple, like an alien, I mean, if my camera was producing these types of colors, I would definitely want to adjust that so it looks more natural, especially if you use it all the time. I mean, every other news broadcast ap for example the colors looked fine because if you are a professional if you're in this field then why wouldn't you want things to look good so you know it just looks really suspect like i don't have evidence to confirm that this is what cnn in fact did they haven't responded to accusations that they adjusted the color but um you know to do this in an insidious way to maybe prime your viewers to think that he's more sick than he is there's something really like gross about that and look i'll be perfectly honest when i am adjusting thumbnails with donald trump's image you know maybe i'll go a little overboard on the saturation to make him look a little bit more orange than he is in reality um but that's just me being a dick like if i am talking about someone's health i'm not going to go out of my way to disingenuously make them look more sick because there's something just really gross about that right making fun of someone and making them orange is one thing but we're talking about bernie sanders and his health people are going to be looking at him they're going to have him under a microscope you know they're going to looking at be looking at his skin tone his color the way he talks and you know cnn probably was cognizant of this fact and maybe they did maybe they didn't either way this is either amateur or them going out of their way to make him look bad intentionally and um, either way, it's not good for CNN. Now, on top of that weird little controversy, um, there's also been some talk of Bernie Sanders potentially winding down the campaign altogether. So he said something to the effect of, I'll be doing less campaign events, and now there are reports of him scaling back the campaign. And look, here's the thing about that. Bernie Sanders is not scaling back the campaign insofar as, you know, he's winding it down, he's going to be exiting soon. What he meant when he said that and why, you know, CNN omits the context here is frustrating, um, but we know why they're doing it. What he meant was, look, I'm just going to campaign as much as other candidates, not more. Because if you're doing four rallies per day, you are doing probably double than other candidates. So by just running a campaign that is comparable, you know, that puts you at parity with your opponents, that makes sense. But they're trying to make it seem as if, oh, he's sick, he's exiting. Um, so in an interview with CNN, he kind of cleared up all of the confusion. And I want to play what he had to say. He also kind of talked about the heart attack. And, um, you know, I think this is important. So uh, here is Bernie Sanders talking to CNN. I want to clarify something. You said that you misspoke yesterday when talking about changing the nature of your campaign 
dialing it back, not doing four rallies a day anymore. What, what, what did you mean? Did you misspeak or are you going to dial it back? Well, what I mean is probably next week I'm not going to do four rallies a day. I, I think I've done more rallies than any other candidate who's currently running for president of the United States. But I'm feeling great, and we're going to run a vigorous campaign. Uh, we're working on our schedule right now, which is going to take us uh, to Iowa, uh, to uh, Nevada, uh, probably back to New Hampshire. We're ready to go full blast. You, you, you had had a doctor's appointment, uh, I believe, this week, and a follow-up appointment now right. back here in, in Vermont. What do, they, what do they tell you? Well, the reason I have been blessed with such good health throughout my entire life, to be honest with you, I've never gone to a cardiologist, uh, I, I don't think, you know, before uh, this event. Uh, and I didn't have one here in, in Burlington. So we found a very good cardiologist. Uh, they did a, uh, a, a uh, you know, they, they looked at my heart. Uh, and what he says, the recovery is going very, very well. And we look forward to a full recovery. The, the, the echocardiogram uh, is what they Echocardiogram. Did. Yeah. That, which is an important test. An echocardiogram tells the function of the heart, how well the heart right. is beating and can also give some indication of how severe the heart attack right. was. Right. What did they tell you? Well, what they told me is that, uh, that we are on the road to a full recovery. There was some damage, but what happens is, as it, within the next month, we'll see what happens. Uh, but so far, so very good. There's a, there's a video of you actually swinging a baseball. That was this uh, swinging a bat. Uh, trying to keep up with my grandchildren. Keep... That is very exhausting, I must tell you. I, I, it's almost a silly question to ask how you're feeling because you, you, you said that you, f you feel Sanjay, great. Sanjay, the God's truth is that if you, you sitting there and you said, Bernie, did you have a heart attack last week? I'd say, what are you talking about? I feel great. Uh, I, not an ounce of pain. You know, I've been walking around a whole lot, playing ball with the kids. Uh, so, you know, I, I feel very good and I'm confident that we're going to be uh, running a very, very vigorous uh, campaign. But what I would say, and I, I don't know if you wanted to talk about this, is what I do kick myself a little bit about, and I hope people understand this and hear this, is that I should have paid more attention to some of the symptoms that were occurring. You know, when you do four rallies a day and you run all over the country, you get tired. Everybody yeah. would get tired. But I was more tired than I usually uh, have been. Uh, had more trouble sleeping than ordinarily. Uh, occasionally I'd be up there uh, at the podium and I'd feel a little bit unsteady. Uh, and you know, one time I was just lifting, literally holding the mic up to my arm and my arm hurt, really? my, up to my mouth and my arm hurt. And, and I should have paid more attention to those symptoms. So I hope that people learn from my mistake. I mean, it's such an important point. The symptoms that you're describing may not be classic sort of symptoms, but left arm pain, some of this stuff uh, were, were indicators. In retrospect, how long had you had symptoms, Senator? I think probably uh, it's hard to say, you know, because as I said, when you're running around the country and you're working hard, you're tired. Well, what else is no? You're going to be tired. Uh, I would say several weeks anyhow, and, and I should have paid more attention to that. So that clarification was incredibly important, but I'll be honest, I don't know that that's going to be enough to sufficiently quell fears that he's scaling back the campaign because he's deathly sick. I mean, he had a heart attack that was, that was serious, but like, he's doing okay. You saw him in the video. He looked good. His color in that video, to CNN's credit, was 
natural. It looked like the skin tone of a human being and not an alien. But, um, you know, we'll just have to see. It seems like his poll numbers were definitely affected by this negatively. Although today, you know, his poll numbers ticked up a little bit. So it's just too early to tell. All I know is that we have to go as Bernie Sanders supporters and put in extra hours work overtime to make sure that we communicate to people that Bernie Sanders isn't going anywhere. Now, the problem is that, you know, sometimes once a narrative gets out there and it spreads, it's really difficult to change it. So we just have to do the best that we can. Now, on top of that, he assured us that he is in very good health. And, you know, you can see that, right? He assures us that he's in good health, but you can also see it. Like if someone was lying about their health, I think you'd be able to tell. And he also had a really important message about, you know, Looking at the warning signs when it comes to your health, if you feel as if you're fatigued, if you feel as if, you know, you're not in good health and maybe you're just not up to what you usually are when it comes to energy, go to the doctor. You know, don't wait until you end up having a heart attack. Don't wait until it is a medical emergency. Get checked out. See a doctor. But, you know, the thing about this is that's not necessarily realistic because people do know that they have health issues. They see the warning signs, but they can't go to a doctor because they don't have health insurance. Or maybe they do, but they can't afford the copay. Or, you know, they need a procedure, but they can't afford the money for, you know, the deductible to meet that. So, you know, it's not so easy to just say, pay attention to the warning signs and uh, see a doctor. And the thing about Bernie Sanders is he gets this. He's not just saying that ignorantly, hey, go see a doctor if you need to. He acknowledges the reality in America that many people, they can't pay attention to the warning signs. Or if they do, they can't do shit about it because we live in a system that is run by private insurance companies that just want to make money off of you. And they make money off of you by denying you care. So he put out a video on his YouTube channel where he kind of elaborated about how this heart attack got him thinking even more clearly about Medicare for All. And it kind of reignited that spark that he had, not that it ever went out, but it really made him, you know, it, it put everything into perspective. And he thought, what if I didn't have health insurance? How this could have turned out would have been completely different. And I want to share what he said, because I think it's really important. And it shows that even in times of crisis, he never stops thinking about normal Americans. Let me take this opportunity to thank people from all over the country uh, for their love, uh, their kind wishes, and I just can't tell you how much it has meant uh, to Jane and to me and to our whole family. Uh, and I also want to say that I am feeling great. Uh, I'm getting my endurance back, uh, and I look forward uh, to getting out on the campaign trail uh, as soon as possible. But let me relay to you just kind of an experience that I had lying in a hospital bed in Las Vegas after the heart attack. And I thought about a lot of things, needless to say, but one of the things that just went through my brain is what would have happened if I did not have uh, the good health insurance that I have. I have both Blue Cross and Blue Shield through my job in the Senate, and then I have Medicare as well. So what happens if somebody had no health insurance, who felt the pain in his or her chest, or felt really sick, and said to themselves, do I really want to go to the doctor or the hospital because I don't have tens of thousands of dollars to pay uh, for the medical bills that I'm going to incur. How many people are in that position? How many people have died because they don't get to the doctor or the hospital when they should? And it made me feel even more strongly the need for us to continue our efforts to end this dysfunctional and cruel 
healthcare system, which leaves so many people uninsured, underinsured, causes bankruptcy, lowers credit scores for people who owe medical debt. It is an insane, wasteful, bureaucratic system based on the greed of the healthcare industry. So I got to tell you that even as I sat and lied down in that hospital bed in Las Vegas, this issue of the struggle that we are engaged in just, you know, permeated my mind. And I want all of you to understand that the day is going to come when 20 years from now, 30 years from now, you're going to be talking to your kids and you're going to be talking to your grandchildren and looking back and say, you know what, I was involved in that struggle that finally brought health care to all Americans as a human right. That's what we're trying to do. So be proud of the efforts that we're making. Understand the enormous opposition that we're facing from the drug companies and the insurance companies. But we are going to win this struggle. History is on our side. Function of healthcare is quality care for all, not billions in profits for the drug companies and the insurance companies. Look, I give Bernie Sanders credit. That is someone who is just genuinely a good person. He never stops thinking about others. He never stops thinking about people who are less fortunate, right? And he's imperfect. He's not, you know, the best politician perhaps ever. I don't agree with him 100% on every single thing, but you can tell, you know, what's evident to me about Bernie is that he has a good heart and he's genuinely trying to affect change in a positive way and to really use his heart attack to try to be an even stronger advocate for the less fortunate and push even harder for Medicare for All coming from a place of, you know, knowledge of what it's like to suffer, you know, a health crisis. It just, it shows me why we need to fight for him. And look, I'll say this, this could hurt him you know, long term, this heart attack, we have no idea. It's too early, but I'm not going to try to predict how this will affect his campaign. This is what I will say to you. If you want Bernie to be president, you fight for it. You don't just say, man, I hope that this doesn't affect him. You fight for Bernie Sanders. You fight for it. If you want something, you have to go and get it. Um, we see Elizabeth Warren overtaking Joe Biden in the polls, although he just overtook her again. But, you know, we see that they're neck and neck and Bernie Sanders is starting to fall. Don't just stand idly by while that happens. There is how many months until uh, Iowa? So it's almost uh, November. We're in mid-October. So what we have three months. That's a lot of time where things can change. And, you know, with every action comes a reaction. So if you fight for Bernie Sanders, that can actually have an effect. And we need more and more people to do that. So don't just worry about how this will affect him. Actively fight to make sure it doesn't hurt him. And not just that this doesn't hurt him. Like, we want him to excel. Make the electability argument that he can be Donald Trump. You know, um, we have to go out of our way more so than ever now to defend Bernie Sanders and get him elected. Because if we want something like, you know, student debt cancellation, medical debt cancellation, Medicare for all, he's the one candidate who's going to bring about that type of change. So if you want that, you've got to fight for it. And, you know, we're going to blame ourselves if 30 years down the line, we don't get a President Bernie Sanders. We're going to look back to this moment and think, man, I really, really wish I fought harder. I wish I could have done more. So all I'm saying is don't kick yourself later. Use this moment and capitalize on it. Fight so that way, even if we lose you know, you, you know, you've assured yourself that you did everything you possibly could to get Bernie Sanders elected.
Tulsi Gabbard may have qualified for the October debate, but that doesn't necessarily mean that she will in fact be attending it because she floated the idea of boycotting it in a video that she posted to Twitter and YouTube. This is what she had to say. I want to thank all of you so much for your support. I need to share something with you that's very important. There are so many of you who I've had the opportunity to meet in Iowa and New Hampshire who've expressed to me how frustrated you are that the DNC and the corporate media are essentially trying to usurp your role as voters in choosing who our Democratic nominee will be. I share your concerns, and I'm sure that all of our supporters throughout the country do as well. Now, the 2016 Democratic primary election was rigged by the DNC and their partners in the corporate media against Bernie Sanders. In this 2020 election, the DNC and the corporate media are rigging the election again, but this time it's against the American people in the early voting states of Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. They're attempting to replace the roles of voters in the early states using polling and other arbitrary methods, which are not transparent or democratic, and they're holding so-called debates, which really are not debates at all, but rather commercialized reality television meant to entertain rather than to inform or enlighten. So in short, the DNC and the corporate media are trying to hijack the entire election process. So in order to bring attention to this serious threat to our democracy and to ensure that your voice is heard, I'm seriously considering boycotting the next debate on October 15th. I'm gonna announce my decision within the next few days. But I just want to say with my deepest and warmest aloha, thank you all again for your support. Now, in response to that video, 2020 contender Marianne Williamson chimed in saying, I have great respect for Tulsi for saying such inconvenient truth. She is absolutely correct. Okay, so I have quite a bit to say about this. I think this is really interesting and, you know, it's an interesting strategy, but I kind of want to disaggregate this and talk about this in two different sections. I want to address the merit of what she's saying, and I also want to address strategically if there is any value in boycotting the debate in order to raise awareness about this issue. But first, let's talk about the merits overall. So I think that when she says that there are, or implies rather, that there are these institutional disadvantages, I do think that there's absolutely merit to that. Corporate media does choose winners and losers. I think that that's absolutely true. And anti-establishment candidates, they just don't get as much screen time in mainstream media as establishment candidates. I mean, look at John Delaney. He's been polling at less than 1%, but yet you can argue that he gets more interviews than someone like Andrew Yang, who is a mid-tier candidate. So I absolutely think that she's correct to call that out and to her complaint about a lack of transparency when it comes to the DNC's choice of polls and which polls they use to determine who qualifies for debates and who doesn't. You know, I also agree with her that the DNC should release the criteria they use to choose polls. I think that more transparency is always better. And I also have the same complaints about the debates that she does. Bernie Sanders said this, you know, in an interview with Joe Rogan. He said that these debates just aren't really formatted that well. And Bernie Sanders, in fact, just proposed a plan to ban advertising during debates hosted by corporate media. So when it comes to the feeling of her and other anti-establishment smaller candidates feeling disenfranchised, I absolutely am sympathetic towards that I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of criticism that we all should be lobbying against the uh, the mainstream corporate media because they are, in fact, able to use the power that they have to choose winners and losers, oftentimes based off of, you know, the interests of the elites, their corporate advertisers. And that's that's fundamentally 
something that is incompatible with true democracy. So we have to fight against that. So I get that. However, you know, she's right to point out that the 2016 Democratic Party primary was rigged against Bernie Sanders. No disagreement there. It was. It was. But when she says or implies rather that what's happening now in 2020 is comparable to what the DNC did back in 2016 to Bernie Sanders, I do take issue with that. Now, I understand her calling out the disadvantages institutionally, but there's this underlying implication that I got, and maybe I'm wrong, that the disadvantages and biases that plague her campaign don't apply to Bernie Sanders, and I don't know if she's saying that, but if she is, I would totally disagree. They're still biased. Corporate media still doesn't like Bernie Sanders, and I also think that, you know, addressing these institutional advantages that pro-establishment candidates have, it is important, but to say that the entire 2020 primary process is rigged in the same way it was in 2016, I think that that's just a bridge too far, because that is a word that is really big. It's a loaded term, so you have to be very careful at what you call rigged and what you don't call rigged, because if you just casually throw around the word rigged, then people will feel more inclined to not take you seriously. It's like the boy who cried wolf, right? So I'm not going to use the word rigged unless I truly feel as if it's rigged, and comparing 2016 to 2020... 2020 is not rigged, and we don't want to look like we're just sore losers who cry rigged whenever something doesn't go our way. We actually want to be able to back up our rigged claim with evidence. Now, when we go back to the 2016 election, the reason why we say that was rigged and can easily prove that is because, I mean, the DNC was brazen in using their institutional advantages to severely handicap Bernie Sanders' campaign. I mean, Debbie Wasserman Schultz literally cut off his campaign's access to NGP Van. He was one of two major candidates. She cut off his access to Van, and Bernie's campaign had to threaten to sue to regain access. Uh, debates were limited and scheduled on weekends before major holidays. That's certainly not an issue this time, although you can complain, you know, about the criteria to qualify. Hillary Clinton in 2016 signed a joint fundraising agreement that allowed her to control the DNC's press releases and aspects of the DNC's funding even before she won the primary. There were surrogates in the mainstream media for Hillary Clinton that didn't even disclose that they were on Hillary campaign's payroll. I mean, superdelegates were used by the media to inflate Hillary Clinton's lead. Debbie Wasserman Schultz literally had to resign in disgrace once all of this came out. So, I mean, when you look at all of these details about 2016, unquestionably, it was rigged. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm saying that the outcome was fixed. Could Bernie Sanders still have won in 2016 in spite of the DNC's rigging? Yes. However... What the DNC did was actively try to sabotage Bernie Sanders when they claimed that they were neutral, right? They were neutral arbiters of a primary process and they were going to let voters decide. That obviously wasn't the case and they tried to handicap his campaign at every chance that they got. Now, you can argue about corporate media, you can argue that the DNC hasn't been transparent, but that doesn't really mean that it's on the level of rigging and I wouldn't use rigging for 2020. I think that in 2020, all the same institutional advantages that uh, pro-establishment candidates have uh, continue to exist, but they're not actively trying to sabotage Bernie Sanders this time or smaller candidates. But, you know, I do believe it's important that we draw attention to the way that smaller candidates, mostly anti-establishment candidates, are disenfranchised. But to call it rigged, uh, I just feel like 
that's not smart because we don't want people to stop taking us seriously. Like when we say rigged, we really have to mean it. And, uh, you know, you can say that certain aspects are unfair. Corporate media is absolutely trying to choose winners and losers, but it's not, it's not rigged in the way that it was in 2016. And for her to kind of imply, if I'm correct, that, you know, the same institutional biases that hurt Bernie, you know, that hurt her don't hurt Bernie. I just think that that's unfair. So, you know, I kind of, I, I see where she's coming from. I understand why she and her supporters might feel disenfranchised, but I think you have to be a little bit more careful. Now, on top of that, let's get to the strategy of this. So, is boycotting a debate to draw attention to these disadvantages that smaller anti-establishment candidates face, is that a useful strategy? I would say, overall, no. And if I were Tulsi Gabbard, I would be attending that debate. I, I think it's more useful for her to show up and then draw attention to this issue. Now, you can say that the strategy in announcing the possible boycott was successful because it got a lot of headlines. She was trending on Twitter, so mission accomplished there. But if you're actually going to boycott, I don't think that that's a smart strategy at all. I think that's a really bad strategy, actually, because your supporters fought to get you on that debate stage. They sent in donations. They canvassed for you, and they fought for you. So for you to say, I'm not going to attend in protest of what I think is unfair, which, you know, you have a point that it's unfair to an extent, um, I just, I don't think that's a good strategy. Now, you can say that Donald Trump, you know, he used this strategy relatively effectively, but the difference is that Tulsi Gabbard is a small candidate, and Donald Trump was polling in first place. So corporate media back in 2016 was really relying on Donald Trump to show up to these debates for ratings, and he knew that. And Donald Trump, he had leverage, right? He was using that to his advantage. But the problem here is that Tulsi Gabbard has no leverage. Like, they don't want her at the debate anyway. Corporate media definitely wanted Donald Trump there. But the media doesn't have this love affair with Tulsi Gabbard that they did with Donald Trump. So if she doesn't show up, she's literally just giving them exactly what they want. So I don't think this is a good strategy um, at all. I, I really don't. So if she boycotts, I would be surprised because I, I think that, you know, this... This would hurt her campaign. When you are polling at 1%, then this is mostly about name recognition. This is mostly about getting the word out about your campaign. So to sit out a debate, which is crucial, you're basically shooting yourself in the foot. As many of you know by now, Elizabeth Warren has sworn off high dollar fundraisers with elites because she knows and she's stated repeatedly that this has a very corrosive effect on politicians. It is a corrupting influence. So she has sworn off these types of high dollar fundraisers. Although swearing off these types of fundraisers comes with a really big caveat. Here's what she said during an interview with TYT. You, you mentioned earlier that uh, you don't believe in unilateral disarmament. So does this only apply in the primaries or will you carry this over to the general election or any other election you'll have going forward? So this is for primaries. Look, I do not believe in unilateral disarmament. We need to win. We need to win in 2020 and when we hit 2020, and we're in a race against Donald Trump when we're in a race for control of the Senate and control of the House and in control of the state houses and the governor's mansions. In all of those, the Republicans are going to be bringing a lot of money, a lot of power, a lot of dark money, a lot of super PACs all to the fight. We play by the same rules. And in that one, I say, we got to be all in. It's not just progressives who want to see the abandonment of big donors. Most voters are concerned about this issue. Are you at all worried that they would stay home during the general election if you pivot toward accepting that money? 
Look, I think that what we've got right now is we gotta show what we can build person to person to person to person across this country. I think we've gotta show what we can build through democracy, that we believe in democracy, that we have faith in democracy, that we can make democracy work. I think we can show that in our primary. I think then we can just be tough as nails and take on Donald Trump, take on the Republican senators and congressmen in the general election, and then we gotta change the laws. So at the time when she initially said this, I made a video vocalizing my disappointment because it really doesn't make sense for you to do this. If you're the Democratic Party nominee, you're one of two candidates who will be elected. You are going to get free press and you don't need to raise money by being corrupted possibly by elites, by rich people. So why would you do that? Why would you allow elites to buy access to you essentially when you already are going to be able to effectively get the message out? I mean, think about this. Hillary Clinton outraised Donald Trump by a fairly large margin and she still lost. In the general election, when all the eyes are on you, you don't need big money to win. You'll need money to win, let me be clear. But you can sustain yourself with, you know, grassroots fundraising. Hell, even a lot of candidates that I talk to who are running for Congress across the country, in those races, it's a lot more difficult to get your name out there. But they're still being principled regardless, and they're not taking big money. They're not doing these high-dollar fundraisers because they know it is corrupting and they don't want to be corrupted. So, with that being said, though, Elizabeth Warren just had a very stellar third quarter uh, of fundraising. The only person who outraised her marginally was Bernie Sanders. He crushed it, but she still did really good, right? She raised a lot of money from small grassroots donors and probably realizing how she can sustain herself throughout the general if she's the nominee with just small dollar fundraising. Um, she made this announcement. She decided to walk back her general election pivot. As Shane Goldmacher of the New York Times tweeted, in a shift, Elizabeth Warren now says she will not do big money fundraising events if she's the Democratic nominee. She had previously said her ban only applied to the primary. Now, I actually gave her credit for this on Twitter when I found out about this because I am of the belief that when you tell a politician to do something and they listen, you should commend them for it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I try her. You know, I, I see the writing on the wall, right? Elizabeth Warren, we all know that she did these big dollar fundraisers back in 2018 when she was seeking re-election in the Senate, and she transferred about, what was it, $10 million of her own money from those big donors to her 2020 campaign. Now, it's not unusual to transfer money from your Senate to your presidential campaign. Bernie Sanders did the same thing, but what's problematic is that she essentially said, look, I'm not going to be corrupted. I'm not taking these uh, money from fundraising events, but I mean, you kind of did because you took the money and then you're transferring it, so that's an issue. But, you know, whenever a politician does something good, I believe in both a stick and carrot approach. We beat them over the head with a stick until they acquiesce. And uh, once they do, then we offer them a carrot and tell them they did, did a good job. But with Elizabeth Warren, she just it's like she's going out of her way to uh, faceplant because less than 24 hours later, she walked back that commitment because as NBC News reporter Mark Murray pointed out, Elizabeth Warren's campaign clarifies she'll raise big dollar money for the party if she becomes the nominee, though not for her campaign. So this is pointless. Why did you even announce that then? You're still doing these fundraisers in the general then. Why even make the announcement? Like, I, I don't get it.
Because think about this, why do we not like these fundraisers in the first place? Because it essentially allows elites to buy access to politicians. So regardless if they're donating money to you or the DNC, they're still buying access to you. They're buying a seat at a table at one of these fundraisers to get access to you. So do you understand why this doesn't make a difference? It doesn't matter that you're doing these high-dollar fundraisers for the DNC and not your campaign. That doesn't matter. So why would you even go out of your way to say, you know what, after all, I am not going to do these high-dollar fundraisers in the general, only to then flip-flop less than a day later. I mean, we were already disappointed, right? But then you got our hopes up, and now we're even more disappointed. I mean, her political instincts are horrible. Look, we have a chance now to get Bernie Sanders elected. If you are on the left, you have no reason to fight for anyone who is not Bernie Sanders. So if you are not 100% committed to getting Bernie Sanders elected, then I don't know how you can consider yourself a part of the left, like the true progressive left, right? Why are you wasting your time on anyone else who is not Bernie Sanders when one, he has the best chance of winning, and two, he objectively speaking, if you are progressive, has the best platform, the most robust platform. How? I, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. So, um, I mean, I, I just, I don't understand Elizabeth Warren. Let's be real about her. Is she better than Trump? Yes, but that is a very low bar. Elizabeth Warren is not going to be a Bernie Sanders. She's no Bernie Sanders. If she gets elected, we know exactly what to expect. She's going to be Obama 2.0. She's going to do a couple of things that are pretty good um she's gonna do a lot of really questionable things um she's gonna continue the drone war and the u.s empire she's going to make questionable decisions like do you honestly think she's gonna give us medicare for all i mean just the fact that she supports it in and of itself that's good but do you think she's actually going to fight for it do you think she's actually going to push to get money out of politics i just i can't trust her because she keeps flip-flopping right there's enough red flags to where we need to read the writing on the wall elizabeth warren ain't it it's bernie sanders Fight for him while we have the chance to get a true progressive elected, someone who won't waver on any of these issues, who there's no question if he's going to be bought off. Fight for Bernie Sanders, get him elected, because it's not over yet. We don't just have to sit back and accept defeat when there's three months until anyone casts a single vote, you know, at a caucus, um, or caucus, whatever, you know what I mean. So we don't have to just sit back and accept this shitty situation where we have, you know, someone who isn't great going up against Donald Trump. She's far better than the rest of the field, but with how bad Democrats are currently, it's just not good enough. Sorry, Liz. So we need Bernie Sanders, and that means we have to fight for him. End of story. So I know I already talked about this, but I still want to talk about this Ellen thing a little bit more because uh, I'll be honest, I'm still bitter and I'm getting even saltier seeing how she has responded to criticism. She has essentially doubled down and it's making me realize that, you know, Ellen is trash. She is a garbage human being. Like, there will always be a degree of respect in my heart for her because she, you know, raised awareness about LGBTQ issues. But it just shows you that, like, once you become rich, you become so detached from everyone else. You surround yourself with yes men and yes women, and no amount of criticism will ever penetrate that bubble, and of course the peasants must be wrong. Now, just to give you a little bit of context, in case you've been living under a rock, Ellen DeGeneres has faced criticism for hanging out with mass murderer, torturer, and war criminal George W. Bush. Now, she addressed this criticism that she received in a YouTube video titled, This Photo of Ellen and George W. Bush 
will give you faith in America again. No, no, it won't. It just goes to show you that uh, one, Ellen is trash, and two, rich people, they put class solidarity above everything else. You know, her class is more important to her than her identity as a gay woman. And, you know, forget that George W. Bush tried to get a constitutional amendment ratified to permanently ban her marriage. Uh, forget about all that. They're from the same class, so they're buddy-buddy. Now, the way that Ellen has responded to backlash is what really demonstrates to me that she is a shitty person because, you know, she's essentially turned into a copyright troll. So I'm not going to be able to play that video. I'll link to it down below because I don't want to deal with any copyright bullshit. But let me just give you, you know, the video overlay and I'll give you the quick rundown about what she said. So, of course, you know, in the process of this video, she told a bunch of shitty, unfunny jokes. And then she shared a video of George W. Bush sitting next to her and how awesome that was, you know, pretending as if he wasn't a mass murderer with the blood of thousands of innocents on his hands. And then she went on to condescendingly explain how she's friends with George W. Bush. In fact, she's friends with a lot of people who don't share the same beliefs that she has. And one example that she cites is how some of her friends wear fur. And she doesn't like that, but, you know, she stresses that she is committed to being kind to everyone. And she doesn't just mean she's going to be kind to people, you know, who she agrees with. She's going to treat everyone, including war criminals like George W. Bush, the same way. And she went on to thank George Bush for a good time because she said it was so fun. And the brainless drones in her audience cheered and applauded like the sheep that they are. And that's that. Except everything she said there is completely missing the point. She is tone deaf because we're not just talking about that annoying uncle that you're forced to deal with every thanksgiving who likes to talk about how obama was a muslim that's not what we're talking about we're not talking about your conservative family member who irritates you we are talking about a criminal who has never been brought to justice someone who is directly and indirectly responsible for one million deaths who tortured human beings that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about, you know, a mere political disagreement here. We are talking about a war criminal. Would you hang out with O.J. Simpson? Would you, you know, get dinner with Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy? Of course you wouldn't. So the fact that she's willing to give George W. Bush a pass demonstrates to me that Ellen DeGeneres has no regard for human life. And let me remind you that all of this death and destruction was catalyzed by George W. Bush's lie about Iraq having weapons of mass destruction. So, I mean, her response, it was tone deaf. It was tone deaf. I wish I could play it. But um, the way that people responded and demonstrate how tone deaf it was, was they did this. They keyed out the blue screen that was behind her, and they put in images of people being tortured, images of the destruction caused by Bush during the Iraq war. And once this video started to spread, well, Ellen's team then started rushing to get the video removed from Twitter as quickly as possible. And she basically turned into a copyright troll. Her team started issuing DMCA takedowns left and right for all of these videos. But assuming she has never heard of the Streisand effect, this only led to the videos being shared more far and wide. So, you know, the worst part, isn't just that Ellen DeGeneres is one shitty celebrity who's wrong here. This is affecting 
all of political discourse. Because when you are that wealthy, when you have that large of a platform, you are in a position of power. Because in a capitalist system, wealth equals power. So the way that she's impacting discourse in a negative way, giving people the wrong idea, is what I care about the most. So of course, other dim celebrities, such as Reese Witherspoon, chimed in, issuing support for Ellen. You have actress Kirsten Bell saying Ellen is her queen on Instagram. And people who technically should know better, like Tulsi Gabbard, even decided to chime in, saying, Ellen's message of being kind to all is so needed right now. Enough with the divisiveness. We can't let politics tear us apart. There are things we will disagree on strongly and things we agree on. Let's treat each other with respect, aloha, and work together for the people. I mean, for someone who constantly talks about how you know the cost of war firsthand, it, it just... I don't get that, but okay, whatever. Um, so, I mean, at the rate we're going, this will be liberals in 2030. Once we have a President Steve King, watch how quickly they normalize Donald Trump. Hell, we don't even need a President Steve King for them to normalize Donald Trump. Give it eight years after he's out of office, um, and they'll forget that he ever locked babies in cages, sold Saudi Arabia the weapons that he knew they'd use to commit genocide in Yemen. They're going to pretend like all of that never happened. They will normalize Donald Trump and I guarantee it. But here's the thing. This is not about kindness. This is not about unity. We are not talking about a disagreement between you and your re Republican uh, sibling. I have a Republican brother. I talk to him. Uh, we debate all the time and we don't get along because we have worldviews that are diametrically opposed and we clash because of that. But of course, I talk to my brother. Of course, right? But what we are talking about here is pretending as if a war criminal isn't that bad. But thankfully, there were a couple of celebrities who got it right. The Hulk, Mark Ruffalo, for example, tweeted, Sorry, until George W. Bush is brought to justice for the crimes of the Iraq War, including American-led torture, Iraqi deaths, and displacement, and the deep scars, emotional and otherwise, inflicted on our military that served his folly, we can't even begin to talk about kindness. And Susan Sarandon tweeted out a quote that was featured in Out Magazine, which said, But missing the point entirely, DeGeneres framed the issue as simply a matter of her hanging out with someone with different opinions, not a man repeatedly accused of being a war criminal. Exactly. I didn't think that this would be that difficult for people to grasp, but apparently it is. Apparently, you know, it's easy to forget that someone started a war that killed hundreds of thousands of civilians. Bush's war catalyzed a civil war in Iraq, created a vacuum in that region, led to the creation of ISIS, who then went on to kill more people, got us further involved in the Middle East and North Africa. I mean, Bush is a monster. Bush is a monster. So I'll say it again. When you see George W. Bush... You shouldn't feel, you know, nostalgia for the days when we had a president who was less chaotic, less volatile. You should feel rage because he's free. This is someone who is a criminal who should be locked in prison until the day he dies. And the fact that he will never be brought to justice is a shame and it demonstrates that America doesn't care about human rights. Now, our country, the institutions that we have, they're deeply corrupt, so of course we're not going to hold the powerful accountable, but as individuals, we can speak out. But the fact that Ellen chose not to, the fact that she called George W. Bush her friend and bragged about how the evening that she had with Bush was so fun, it shows that she's a bad person because she doesn't care that she hung out with a mass murderer. She doesn't care that he tortured. She doesn't care.
So that makes her a bad person. Fuck Ellen. Fuck anyone who agrees with this sentiment that we should be kind to war criminals. Fuck all of that. I'm tired of this talk about civility and kindness and unity. No. When human lives are on the line, we will not be kind. We will not unify under the guise of civility. We will fight you because you are wrong and we are correct. You know, I do have my policy and strategic disagreements with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. With that being said, I have largely defended her up until this point against right-wing attacks because I just feel like they're baseless, they're overly hyperbolic. But there is a new scandal involving AOC, and personally, I don't know that this is going to be something that she will be able to overcome. I don't know that I, as an individual, will be able to support her after finding out what you're going to find out right now. So in an exclusive report for the Washington Times, Alex Swoyer explains self-declared socialist AOC splurges on high-dollar hairdo. It's safe to say at this point, she's done. <laughs> <laughs> I literally got a haircut yesterday. I guess this means that I am no longer a socialist. Damn. You know, if anyone found out that I am a gamer and, you know, I have a gaming addiction, not really an addiction, but I play a lot of video games, I'm sure that that would undermine, you know, my credibility as a democratic socialist as well. So this is serious. Um, AOC at this point, I don't know how she's going to recover, but let's get to the report. So Sawyer goes on to explain Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has allowed life in Washington to go to her head. Literally, the self-declared socialist who regularly rails against the rich and complains about the cost of living inside the Beltway spent nearly $300 on her hairdo at a pricey salon she frequents in downtown Washington, the Washington Times has learned. The New York Democrat ventured into Last Tangle Salon on 19th Street Northeast last month and shelled out $80 for a haircut and $180 for lowlights according to sources familiar with the salon. A 20% tip would have added $52 to the bill. Her stylist did not respond to a request for comment about the tip. <laughs> okay. This is basically an Onion article, um, but, like, this is legit. Like, this is an individual from a right-wing uh, news outlet that is literally seriously writing this. Her stylist did not respond. <laughs> Do you not, like, have anything serious to be reporting on? Like, I I'm asking genuinely, like, this is an earnest question. Do you not feel as if this kind of is, you know, a betrayal of what you became a journalist for? I mean, this isn't what you want to be reporting on, right? This doesn't make you feel accomplished, right? I mean, there has to be something better than this for you to talk about. I mean, I, I just, I'm confused. Like, at this point, I didn't think that we'd, we'd get here, right? Where they're literally so petty that they're going to say that she's a hypocritical socialist because she went to a salon and got a haircut. 
I, I mean, there are no words to explain the absurdity here. The only thing I could say is if you, you know, uh, told me that this was an Onion article, I would think it was the most brilliant satirical piece that they've put out in months. But this is not satire. This is real. It reminds me of the article from Newsweek where they criticized socialist Bernie Sanders for wearing a $700 jacket while complaining about rich people. I mean, any individual who is shameless enough to write something like this, one of these articles, they are inadvertently admitting their ignorance. They're admitting that they don't know about socialism, they don't know about real political issues, and they're also just the laziest hacks ever. I mean, this article right here about AOC's haircut, this is the Matt Boars comic personified, where, you know, someone says, we should improve society somewhat, and someone says, yet you participate in society. Curious. I am very intelligent. I mean, this is the article right here. <laughs> you, you can't participate in society, um, in a capitalist society if you're a socialist, otherwise you're a hypocrite. I mean, is this really how you want to be represented? Like, if I were a Republican, just strategically speaking, I would say, look, maybe tone down on this type of articles because it makes all of us look dumb. Like, if there was someone on the left that was doing this, I would feel inclined to criticize them because I just feel like, you know, when you start resorting to this, you just look like a fool. Now, look, that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't make fun of AOC. I make fun of Donald Trump for being sweaty all the time and orange and just stupid. But, like, to make this the centerpiece of an attack. It doesn't really make sense. Like, there's no substance here. And it really just shows how vapid the right is, collectively speaking, because while people like AOC are going around making the case for Medicare for All, they're criticizing her, saying, well, maybe you're not a true socialist because you got a haircut. Gotcha. As she makes the case for us to get down to net zero CO2 emissions, they say, oh, well, she must want to uh, ban hamburgers, literally. I mean, do you not think that this is going to hurt your credibility as right-wingers? Don't you want to try to do better so that way you give us at least something to work with? I mean, arguing against this is impossible because this isn't an argument. This is the absence of an argument. This is just idiocy right here. Now, as Jacobin tweeted out hilariously, sad to see Democratic socialists like Bernie and AOC do things like buy winter coats and get haircuts. Don't they know that real socialists avoid purchasing goods and services? And now AOC responded to that, saying 40 million Americans live in poverty under today's extreme inequality. Yet the right wing want you to blame Democratic socialism for their own moral failures. Our policies like Medicare for all advance prosperity for working people. They're just mad. We look good doing it. So there you have it. I don't know what to say about this. Um, there really is nothing that I can add, like to compliment just the fact that this story happened. Like I tried to find funny clips, you know, additional memes to add, and we've got a couple, but I mean, it's funny on its own. Like you can't even really make fun of this because just the content itself is... It's borderline satirical, like it's indistinguishable from satire. So there's no way to parody how comical the right has become. There's no way to really make fun of them in, you know, a way that's meaningful because they do that themselves. Like this discredits themselves. So, I mean, look, if you want to argue against AOC, she's not above criticism. If you want to talk about the fundamentals of single-payer Medicare for all, if you want to talk about why maybe her approach to climate change isn't the best in your view, you'd be wrong, I would argue against you, but at least we'd be arguing based on policy. But this right here, this is just gutter politics. This is, this is so stupid. I don't even know what else to say about this. I mean, 
Jesus Christ, I would say do better, but I want you to keep fucking up like this because this just makes the left look good and the right look like the clowns that you are. This week, Donald Trump is learning the hard way that actions have consequences. And with every action you take, there's going to be a reaction. And it was evident that in the event the U.S. moved out of northern Syria, Turkey was going to invade. And Donald Trump announced that in spite of the risks, he'd be moving out of northern Syria. And Turkey did exactly what we expected them to do invade. And now there is a lot of death and destruction as a direct result of Donald Trump just making a decision seemingly on a whim. So as Darren Butler and Orhan Koskin of Reuters report, Turkey pounded Kurdish militia in northeast Syria for a second day on Thursday, forcing tens of thousands of people to flee and killing at least dozens of people in a cross-border assault on U.S. allies that has turned the Washington establishment against President Donald Trump. The offensive against the Syrian Democratic Forces, SDF, led by Kurdish YPG militia, which began days after Trump pulled U.S troops out of the way and following a phone call with Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan opens one of the biggest new fronts in years in an eight-year-old civil war that has drawn in global powers. The SDF said Turkish airstrikes and shelling had also killed nine civilians. In an apparent retaliation by Kurdish-led forces, six people, including a nine-month-old baby, were killed by mortar and rocket fire into Turkish border towns, officials in southeastern Turkey said. The International Rescue Committee said 64,000 people in Syria have fled since the campaign began. Now, because I like to put human faces to crises like this, because I think it's a good way of showing how certain things affects human beings in a really concrete way, I want to play a clip from CNN International where they kind of show you the chaos that's unfolding and how many people are currently trying to flee the area. This is about a day and a half old, but nonetheless, it still kind of gives you a sense of what's going on and the terror that a lot of people are feeling. We're here on the road out of the town of Ras Al Ain, and as you can see, it is a chaotic situation. The streets, roads just choked full of cars filled with families desperate to get out of here. None of them understanding exactly what is going on, what has happened, what the intention of this Turkish military strikes are. We saw at least six big plumes of black smoke with our own eyes, at least one building that appeared to be on fire. And these people are now fleeing to try to get to safety, but they don't know exactly where safety might be. And let's just take a talk and ch chat to these people quickly. Assalamu alaikum, marhaba, keep going. Min wayn kun? Hey, ana asifi, ana asifi, akid. Khaifin, Yanni, are you afraid? They're saying that they're frightened for the children, and you can imagine why. Look at the sky, it's thick with black smoke. There have been strikes for the last couple of hours. So they're saying there were many different explosions. She's saying there were many explosions that was coming from shelling artillery. They're now trying to get out. And they don't know where they're going or where they might be able to sleep tonight. Clarissa Ward, CNN, outside Ras Al Ain, Syria. So people are scared, thousands are fleeing, and now people are dying. And we are seeing a confrontation between the Kurds and Turkey. 
And as the Reuters article pointed out, it's drawing in global powers. So let me just stress here that this is a very complex issue that requires nuance. This isn't just pro-war, anti-war. You know, if you're anti-war, then pull out. If you're pro-war, stay in. This goes deeper than that. Um, this is an issue that is tricky, right? Because if you are against war, if you are against war because you think that it's immoral, because it causes death and destruction, then it makes sense to want to pull out. But it's kind of counterintuitive to suggest that maybe we should stay there if that means technically we're an occupying force that's there illegally to begin with. But, you know, someone who I really respect, Noam Chomsky, actually argued that U.S. troops should stay in Syria in order to protect the Kurds. And if you're anti-war and acknowledge that we shouldn't be involved in every single country, then it seems counterintuitive to support this. It seems like a little bit contradictory for an anti-war advocate like Noam Chomsky to say this. But here's the thing. You have to think, why do we not like war to begin with? Because whenever there's a war, there's a guarantee that there will be death, destruction, and human suffering. It's all about human beings. We don't want sentient beings to suffer. And that's why we are against war. And what I usually say, because, you know, what a lot of people do is they make the case for war on humanitarian grounds. And that's really difficult to argue against because people don't understand that humanitarian wars don't exist, right? If they did, then I would be advocating for us to be peacekeeping forces to protect the Rohingya and Uyghurs, but that's just not a reality. Like, most times when the U.S. military intervenes in a country, we always make matters worse. So if there's a humanitarian crisis, we end up leading to more destruction and death. But in this instance, in this unique, complex instance, the U.S.'s presence, even if it was illegal, was actually stopping death and destruction, which means that we have to think more deeply. We can't just be, you know, anti-war and pro-war in this instance. We have to be driven by a desire to protect human life. And in this instance, if we have evidence that withdrawing troops from northern Syria would lead to a possible genocide and what's happening now, then I think that the humanitarian in us, even if we are instinctively anti-war, should do what protects life. And that means staying in northern Syria while maintaining the position that we should get out as soon as possible, but not do it in an idiotic way like Donald Trump and not even try to set up some type of long-term contingency plan. So because I personally am guided by a desire to protect human life, I am going to have to side with Chomsky here. I think that, you know, to prevent genocide from happening, to prevent what's happening now from happening, the troops should have stayed there, albeit temporarily until we figure something else out. But it doesn't matter. You know, that's kind of, uh, that's all said and done, right? It doesn't matter what we want because Donald Trump already made the decision. It was a hasty decision that was essentially, uh, I'm assuming anyways, influenced by a phone call he had with Tayyip Erdogan. And now we're to a point where, you know, we're looking at even more death and destruction because he pulled out. You know, what was largely viewed as the anti-war move is going to lead to more war, you know, which which is weird. It's it's why this situation requires, you know, more nuance and more deep thinking here. Now, Donald Trump tweeted, we have one of three choices, send in thousands of troops and win militarily, hit Turkey very hard financially with sanctions, or mediate a deal between Turkey and the Kurds. So think about what this has led to. He is vocalizing his intent to possibly escalate 
with a NATO ally, and this isn't just going to be like a dispute between the United States and Turkey. Like, this will draw in global powers. If you think that Israel and Saudi Arabia and Russia won't be involved, then, you know, you're naive. So, the situation now is worse than anyone could have imagined. I've been a long-time advocate of saying we need to get out of all these countries. But, that doesn't mean that we just do it willy-nilly without a plan and we do it idiotically. Like, you can't just withdraw and, you know, not expect any negative repercussions. Now, it's going to be the case that a lot of ISIS fighters could be freed as the Kurds have to turn their attention to Turkey. And now this could involve a dispute between the United States and Turkey. It's, it's a disaster. Staying there was a better option than conflict with Turkey, potentially. Which is why, you know anti-war individuals are sympathetic towards this position that may be staying in at least temporarily until we figure out a better plan and get UN peacekeeping sources there was the preferable move. And now it's just a complete disaster. It's a clusterfuck and a potential nightmare situation. It's already a nightmare scenario, right? But it could get worse if global powers start really having a proxy war here. Um... So I'll leave that there. We are looking at, you know, a situation where we're far worse off and Donald Trump may escalate with Turkey now. And, you know, he can argue that he's doing it because he wants to protect the Kurds. But we all know that Donald Trump doesn't care about genocide. He vetoed the bill that would have ended the United States' complicity in the Yemeni genocide, Saudi Arabia's genocide in Yemen. So he doesn't care. Um, but now we have this man-child uh, potentially navigating you know, a really huge conflict now. We don't know how this is going to play out, right? But I'm just telling you, pay attention. Because if you're anti-war, then we may get more war now because of what Donald Trump did. So it's not good enough to just say, I'm a non-interventionist, I'm anti-war. He needs to understand how to navigate foreign policy. He needs to have a coherent ideology politically and a strategy and know about the complex geopolitical issues going on in these regions so that way he can stop why we all care about stopping wars to begin with stop death and destruction that's the goal so if he's not going to do that then being anti-war effectively is pointless so we'll just you know we'll pay attention to this and watch but um i'm not optimistic now this looks like it's it's turning into a horrible situation Hello everyone, I am here with Jose Caballero running in California's 53rd Congressional District and this is probably one of the most fascinating races in the country currently and he's here to give us the breakdown. Jose, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to have to be on. I'm a big fan of the show, so I get a little bit of my nervous jitters here. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Nothing yeah, nothing to absolutely. be nervous about. So yes. the reason why your campaign is so interesting is because we're kind of seeing a similar dynamic repeat itself. So you're running against a corporate Democrat. Her name is yeah. Susan Davis, and then inexplicably she announces that she's retiring. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it was very interesting because this race was one of those races that's like, oh, you're challenging a 20-year incumbent. You know, this is just an impossible race. Look at Jose do his thing. But when I ran against Susan, it wasn't personal against her. It was about the issues. It was the fact that she wasn't for Medicare for all. She wasn't for the Green New Deal at the time. She wasn't for education for all, student loan debt forgiveness, bringing the troops home with dignity and not even impeachment or even talking about the idea of it, right? So so she was somebody who was just just a stick in the mud, keeping, keeping the seat warm. So we challenged her because we needed strong progressives to challenge all incumbents in every cycle, every cycle 
cycle every race. So we challenged her and we ran a hard, hard fight, so much so that m about a couple weeks before uh, her announcement, she was running massive survey mailers on Medicare for All and impeachment. And I think she got the numbers that she didn't want. And I think at the end of the day, she was like, am I going to fight? and like try to save this two more years that I'm fighting for, or am I just gonna let it go? And and so she, I think, this is my theory, that she dropped out and just let it go, uh, just be a jump ball. And and so so that's where we're at right now. And so like you said, you so I was one of two other candidates that were running against Susan Davis uh, seriously. And once Susan Davis dropped out, you had um, Sarah Jacobs, who came from the north, she actually ran for uh, Congressional District 50, uh, 49 against uh, Justice Democrat Doug Applegate, which, you know, arguably spoiled that race and let it eventually go to Mike Levin. So she's just been shopping around for a congressional seat. So she's landed here now. And then you have George I. Gomez, who is the president of the San Diego City Council, who is the anointed one. That's the one that all the local Democratic leadership, the local DNC member, all of the people that you would, you would assume would be a part of the establishment are rallying behind her. So, so that's what the dynamic has become. It's become a three-way race. Uh, you know, I've gotten many emails confirm, confirming that it's going to be a three-way race, and it's the progressive versus the the oligarch versus the establishment. So, so we're gonna we're gonna see what happens. But and twelve other people have joined in. So that's <laughs> just this isn't just three of us. I wish it just were, but yeah. it's a lot. Well, and you know, something that says a lot about the other people that decided to join in after the incumbent announced retirement is that they're afraid to challenge power. Because if yeah. you're eyeing that seat, but you're willing to wait, that tells me that you're not really, you know, you're not actually wanting to speak truth to power. You're just jumping in at a, at a time when it's convenient. Um, and we're kind of seeing the same dynamic play out. Like in, in 2018, there was the fourth congressional district, I believe, of Nevada with Amy Valella, where she was running against Ruben Kiwin, and there was the uh, scandal where he had to resign. He uh, There were allegations of you know misconduct with his staffers, and she kind of became the presumptive nominee. And then all of a sudden, a bunch of people start jumping in the race. The establishment starts making these endorsements because they can't just allow a progressive to win a seat when it's wide open, especially if you're the one who kind of made her retire in a way, if you're putting all that yeah. pressure on her. Absolutely. And, you know, that was that was what was so bizarre is like, you know, I was winning support internally in the party. You know, I'm I'm an outsider, but I have done a lot of work internally in the party, establishing the San Diego Progressive Democratic Club, which is a charter club within the party. And then basically creating this internal movement surge of progressives into the Democratic Party. So we had a lot of really great people on board that were going to vote for me and possibly block Susan Davis at pre-endorsement caucus. But the second Susan Davis dropped out, then everybody's loyalties just shifted over like I didn't exist anymore. Um, even one 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 person put a commentary is like, Jose's great, you know, he's hard to dismiss, but he just doesn't have the money to run, to win, right? And it's just like, well, well, that's not that's not what this is about, right? And it just became this, oh, Sarah Jacobs rich, so we have to raise money with another rich establishment, so let's just do it that way. So, so it just fell right back into the same script, and you know they've been telling other progressives this argument: Jose doesn't, Jose needs cannot beat Sarah Jacobs, so we need to vote for Georgette. 
And it's like, wow, did you just say you need to vote for Hillary because Bernie can't beat Trump? Because that's literally what you just said, right? And and that's the, the arguments that they're using is like, oh, this other power is the greater evil, so we need to put the person that has the more resources and the capability when it's just made up. It's not real, right? That argument doesn't even make sense, especially considering Susan Davis has been there since 2001. Like, this is a blue yeah. district. So yeah, the fear-mongering about the Republican doesn't even make sense in this context. But what I think that your story and like other progressives tell me is that they're never just going to allow the progressive to win they're never going to make it easy no matter no. what you will be running against the establishment no matter what and 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 we've proven that you know even to the point where we thought we actually had some movement i thought you know for once you know i could actually get a little bit of a la uh, you know establishment energy right but it just it just died off as fast as it started to come and it, it was it was it was one of those things that's like wow i fell for the trick i got distracted Right. And that's what the Democratic Party does, the progressives inside of the movement. And you have to be watching, watch out for it, where they just like, here's this shiny, shiny, shiny. And they're like, pay attention over here. You can get it. Oh, no, you can't. You can never have that. That's silly. You just wasted all your time trying to get that. Right. It's basically the same type of thing. And I feel like I've been I've been tricked into playing the same pattern once again of like, oh, I thought I had your support. Now you're putting your knives in my back as fast as they came. It was just, it was just, it was just, it, it, it's been, it's been a harrowing couple of weeks to say the I least. Bet. I bet. Yeah. And yeah. here's one thing that frustrates me back in after 2016, you know, 2017, when we were all kind of reeling from the Trump victory, I kept hearing this, you know, this sentiment, run for Congress if you're young and you feel dissatisfied. If you didn't like Hillary Clinton and you didn't come out and vote, you know, run right. for office yourself. And now how many people are running for office? And now this is what's happening. They don't oh. want you to run for office. They're actively trying to stop you. And, and to make it even worse, so to get into uh, not too much into the weeds of the policy here, or the, the establishment wheels, I guess, to say, is there was a vote recently called the Pre-Endorsement Caucus, which is, which is to endorse the, for this race. Now, that is an extension of the state convention that does endorse at, for federal races at the state party level for the state of California. Now, the Pre-Endorsement Caucus is a combination of uh, chartered club delegates to, you know, DNC membership, like those are, just spans different people it came out to be about 91 voters. Now, they use political pressure, they use political promises to turn people trying to push all of their weight behind Georgette, creating the fear of God behind, like, if Georgette doesn't get this, Sarah Jacobs is going to win when Sarah Jacobs isn't an evil person. She's just wealthy, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, she can write herself a five million dollar check. But that's yeah. what she was born into. Right. So she's not this diabolical, horrible person, but they make it out to be that way. And they scare people. Now, this is how far it got. They actually removed the membership of my fiance from DSEC. So from the DSEC. So she is no longer a delegate for the California State Party, you know, and she's a young Democrat. Not only did they pull her credential, they also pulled the president of the San Diego County Young Democrats credential as well, because he was going to vote for Sarah, Sarah Jacobs. So they pulled them both, two young Democrats getting retaliated against because one happened to be getting married to me and the other was voting for another young Democrat. So, so, so for me, I felt like this process has been so toxic 
that it, 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 it's very triggering, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so it's just, it's like one of those things where it's like everybody, like, I, I like to say they're razor blades wounds and they're deep and they're thin. People don't see them, but they're very hurtful for the internal workings of what the establishment is. And that's, and I hate to bring up that drama, but that's what it is because we, let me get to the, the punchline here. We block the endorsement. So going through all of that, going through all of that pain and hardship, we had people hold the line. They held the line. They didn't care about political pressures. One was actually a candidate running for office. They held the line for my for my campaign, and they held the line for Sarah Jacobs' campaign, and they held the line for no endorsement. And, and that is how we were able to block it. Now, it's going to be contested. So we're going to convention. So we're going to have a lot of Jose signs. So if you're in Long Beach during that time, you know, grab a Jose sign and walk around because we're going to be fighting for this to go no endorsement and and make sure that the voters decide. And we need to stop letting the party put its finger on the scale during primaries. Yeah. And I think that this is really important for you to share your story because it's it's more than just like political drama. This really demonstrates the power that the establishment has. Like, and when we say establishment, like we're talking about party elites, people with institutional advantages that they're able to use against grassroots candidates who they don't like so they can kind of cling to power. And, you know, this is just a microcosm of a bigger issue that's happening all throughout the country. Absolutely. And, and to add to that, I had three votes because of my hard work that I put into it. So the vegan Democrats, I just helped co-found, right? They had a vote. They endorsed me, right? You had the two votes for the San Diego Progressive Democratic Clubs. They endorsed me. So therefore, I was able to get those votes. I was an alternate for a central committee member and a DSCC member. So I was able to vote for myself. You know, I was able to help foster in the appointment for my fiance right to be getting on the dscc before i was running for congress so that stuff took years to be able to create and those years have paid off to be able to get the establishment candidate under 70 percent of the vote right and and that and that and that's the thresholds that we're fighting right now it's intense and this like i said these last two weeks have been very harrowing uh, because we we came out with a solid victory, a solid victory. Yeah, this your campaign, um, this whole race is so fascinating. And even though like it's you know you're on the other side of the West Coast, I'm in I'm in Portland. Um, this is so interesting to watch, and it's one of the main races that I've kind of been focused on throughout the oh, course. Because yeah. there's there's so many, there's dozens of people running, and I can't keep track of all of them. But this is that's such fun. an interesting race because of all that's been happening. So I want to talk a little bit about you, because a lot of people are starting to learn about who you are, even though you're just in this one district in California. But you're such an interesting candidate. So first of all, something that I think is interesting, you brought up your fiancé. I love the story about how you two met. Essentially, there was some individual that essentially brought you together. His name is Bernard. Can you talk about that? Because I think this is fascinating. Absolutely. Uh, So back in the day when I was running for actually city council, um, when Bernie Sanders was running, um, I was I was entranced by like everyone else of like, oh, my gosh, Bernie Sanders, when he was pulling nine percent, I endorsed him. Right. I was like, I'm going to endorse this guy, even when it was like not the cool thing to do, Mm -hmm. which also gave me the ire of the establishment. But my my fiance, on the other hand, was going getting a clipboard and going door to door knocking for Bernie Sanders. So when I was fighting and organizing for Bernie Sanders in San Diego County in the 
and she was up in North County in Oceanside doing the same thing. Now, our worlds collide when after after I was elected to be the National Bernie delegate in 2016 to go to Philadelphia representing this district. And when I came back, she came to a meet and greet. And uh, we, she was actually with somebody else at the time, but you know, we met, we crossed paths, um, and and uh, we we met at a meet and greet, and she was like, "Oh, how was Philadelphia?" And we had this conversation. Flashback another year, she's no longer with that person, and and we. And uh, we were in line together because we boneheadedly didn't buy our credentials online. So we had to wait in this massive line. So we got to spend two hours in this frustrating line together, which was great. We got to bond and talk. But then again, we thought we hated each other. <laughs> we thought we didn't like each other. Uh, and then we, we split again for another year. And then after we met again, we were like, you know, we should go on that date. We should do a date. And then from that moment with the Bernie organizing and everything that just kept on bringing us into the same atmosphere of going to Bernie rallies and going to Bernie events, we were always in each other's gravity. And then we finally collided. And then, you know, we we announced our, our engagement to, to uh, Bernie Sanders and Jane. They were the first two to know. Really? side of us uh because we were laying in bed and we're we were we were thinking because we we're about to go to the bernie rally in san diego and uh we're like well we're probably going to be pretty close to bernie what are we going to say if we get a chance to meet him and and we we're just like well, we're thinking about it and we're like well let's just tell him we're getting married and and she was just like so did you just propose i was like i guess if we meet bernie sure why not <laughs> and uh the universe made it happen and we got you know that 30 seconds with bernie and we got that amazing photograph which is also pure coincidence somebody just saw me who was a friend of me who is now the photographer of bernie sanders officially oh. so brian and now he is the official photographer for bernie but he he knew who i was so he took a photo of me talking to bernie but he didn't realize he was actually capturing the exact moment moment of when we were telling Bernie and Jane that we were getting married and it was because of his movement that he started that even brought us in the same universe at all so so yeah Man. that's our story okay very <laughs> that okay I'll, t I'll tell you this I usually don't like love stories I don't like romantic comedies I don't like any of that but this story it just it warms my cold heart and I love it <laughs> so yeah, good it's pretty amazing. I'm, I'm pretty happy to live it. That's so, such so. an awesome story. It just, yeah. you know, it shows like what a community, um, the Bernie Sanders uh, team has developed and Bernie Sanders has developed and how it's changed so many people's lives, you know, in a, a myriad of ways. But I want to talk about policy because, of course, that's yes. what usually we focus Absolutely. on. Now, everyone knows that like the other progressives that I bring on my channel, you check all the boxes, you know, Medicare for all and single payer, uh, you know, student loan debt cancellation, no wars, but usually each candidate brings something really unique. And you also are no exception. You bring a lot of unique perspectives into this mm -hmm. race. So the first thing is you're a veteran and you have the hero's promise. Now, this is essentially what you are deeming the military bill of rights, where you're supporting citizenship for anyone who is a member of the U.S. military, you know, education, housing, meals. Talk a little bit about that, because it, it's really sad to see the epidemic of, you know, depression and suicide, lack of access to mental health for veterans and whatnot. Talk a little bit about what this would do and how it would be transformative for veterans. Absolutely. So I served six years in the Navy and, and just the 
give a little context. The reason I joined was I was an 18-year-old kid and I wanted to get out of my hometown. It was very racist. It was very oppressive and didn't really give people like me an opportunity to actually spread my intellectual wings, per se, right? And so I went into the Navy and asked, hey, what's the most intellectual job you got? Oh, nuclear nuclear engineering, you can be a reactor operator. Great, I'll take it. And I was on I was pretty much on the first bus out of there, right? I was I was gone. Um and and so I went in with that mindset, not really thinking about the war, right? Not really thinking about the tragedy of what the military does and not really even understanding what I was getting myself into. So bring yourself back to a young boy, right, eighteen years old. And, and I'm not even sure why I'm there. I just wanted the first ticket out of town, right? And I wasn't the only one that goes into that situation. A lot of people do. So now fast forward six years into it, right? You, you, you realize war footage. Um, I apologize if you could hear that ding. Um, you hear this war footage, this, 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 this real life thing. So I, I always come back to this story because I think it's the most pertinent in my entire military career. I was getting off of a five-hour watch, and that entire watch, I could hear the, the, the boom of the, the catapults launching off planes. Now, one of my jobs as reactor operators is to make sure there's enough steam demand for the planes to be able to take off. It's a very basic part of the watch, but that's what your job is supposed to be. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm monitoring that, and then it's d- around dinner time. I am sitting in front of TV and there is Captain's Call. Captain's Call is a a closed circuit television that basically uh, you have to watch. So the air boss comes on. So he's the director of, you know, the flight ops of all the planes that are taking off. And all of a sudden he goes, all right, guys, we're going to show you what our operations did today. We're going to put warheads on foreheads. We're going to watch you're going to watch some ragheads blow up today. And then they bring up and and you could see people around me and they're like, oh, wow, you know, and they bring up the green footage and you can see, you know, the infrared with the people and you can see these people walking down this Afghanistan mountain pass. And then you can see the munitions just blow them up. And and mind you, I was not prepared for that. I was like, oh, my God, like those are people in caravans. I don't know if there's kids on those caravans. How am I supposed to trust the military that we just blew up a line of people just so you can have this video to show? It, It completely blew my mind. And it also made me feel disgusting and awful that I use my intellect to to help perpetuate this massive war operation because i'm a veteran of iraqi freedom and enduring freedom and and you know i i i went in after 9 11 right knowing that we were in the middle of a war and still was not sure on what i was getting myself into so now let's flash forward out of the military right you have oh no sorry let's go let's go back because you also have the amount of abuse that is inherent in the military. So you have the psychological bullying, you have the, the the physical bullying, the sexual assault, the assault, right? You have all of these things that are just in a pressure cooker because everybody's inside of the same space and everybody's getting on each other's nerves and you can't get away from each other. And that impressive environment makes people start 
pinning on each other and start pouncing on each other. And it, it is a very, very dangerous psychological place because you can't go and see a therapist because if you do and you get deemed depressed and get on antidepressants, you lose your job. You can't be a nuke anymore. You can't be those high-level jobs. So then you're at the mercy of the military for wherever they want to put you. You can't file a chain of command, file a grievance outside of your chain of command. So if it's your boss punching you in the face, you can't deal with that because you're going to have to report him. Right. And, and, it, you know, you, you have the fact that you'll be getting off a watch when you're on a, a rotating engineering watch. There'll be times you go to the galley where the, where that's the field, the mill hall, and you don't have food. Right. So you're getting off of a six hour watch and hungry thinking there's going to be meal prepared and there's nothing. And the only excuse you got is like, oh, we didn't know you guys were getting off watch. So F you. Right. So, so these, these are the type of things and being punished. By going, you know, not being able to sleep, right? Like, oh, we're going to wake this person up because why, right? So they can punish you, which also affects your psyche. So, so, so then after you get out of the military, you have to deal with the, the stresses of the economy. You have to deal with finding a home. You have to deal with getting health care for your family. You have to deal with all those basic things on top of that you just got pushed out of a world that is completely foreign to most civilians. Like the fact that a, a military member has to start calling a bathroom a bathroom rather than a head is a big deal, right? Because you're changing a complete different language, a complete different lingo. And inside of that universe, you're trained to be an asshole. You really are. Like the strong is rewarded and the weak are punished. So you have to be strong. And that's why a lot of military veterans are the way that they are is because they are putting on a face of strength because that's what's rewarded in, in, in the society that they came from. Not like it is in civilian life because if you come off as too aggressive, you can completely destroy your life, destroy your relationship, destroy a lot of different things in your life from these type of things. So getting to the policy of this, I know I went into a lot of the, the reasons and emotional stuff that's tagged onto that. Let me get to the policy. The policy is a military veteran bill of rights. It, it has protections while you're in and while you're out. So if you are active, you have access to, you have protection, the meal and sleep. You have protection, the file agreements outside of your chain of command. You have protection to the right to mental health services. So you can actually go see a therapist and not fear losing your job. You can go and, and after you get out, you'll be able to actually get an end of service pension, a pension that will actually protect you when you get out. So if you, so it works like this. An average enlistment or an average enlistment is about four years. However, if you're a nuke or a translator or somebody going into intelligence that has required extra schooling, you're signing up for six. I signed up for six. So that's how long the pension should be at a minimum if you are enlisted for six years. So it's caps at six years plus two years if you're a combat vet. So let's say you get out of the military, you do four years, and you were just on a ship and you were you you qualified whatever rank you got out you would be continuing to get the pay of that rank for an access of four years so you'll have four years now being able to get that benefit you have to actually seek a therapist once a month so you have to prove that you're seeing somebody once a month so that way you can talk about your experiences in the military in a safe space rather than having to act strong all the time so you have a place to be vulnerable right then the veteran side is is very simple Healthcare for all, education for all, housing for all, citizenship for all. These are the things that we need to be giving our veterans, and education as well, education for all. So, so these are the things that we need to be giving our veterans. The way housing works, so right now in San Diego, one in four homeless are veterans. 
So, so we have a huge, huge problem nationwide with the veteran population being homeless and out and, and not being able to receive. So what I have a vision of is that we have veteran housing facilities, communities, let's say, housing veteran uh, communities that allow veterans to just go in and move out. We have them across the country, all over the place, where if you're a veteran, no questions asked, you can move in. And if you live in a rural part of the country that doesn't have one close by, we give you a voucher because the rent for those locations are so small that it really doesn't, it's not really going to affect us that much. But for large populous areas where there's affordable housing crisis, we can build up sky rises of veteran communities that are shaped all forms, different sizes. If they want to live in a barracks type of situation with other with other vets, they can do that if they want to help transition out of that. Dorm, same thing, right? Single bedroom, whatever they need to help transition out is the most important thing. So I know it's a long policy, but that's basically um, in, in a nutshell. Now, I'm going to cap this with the most important point. 20 veterans a day are killing themselves. 20. Two of my shipmates of loan have already perished to suicide. I It keeps me up at night to think about this thought, that out of the thousands of hands and faces and people that I have seen and met, I don't even know how many are alive to this day. Because statistically, it's a hell of a lot. Because when you're losing 139,000 veterans since 9-11, like in most of those young veterans, because we're veterans of Iraqi, uh, you know, enduring freedom and Iraqi freedom, we have an epidemic in this country. And we aren't putting progressive veterans forward enough to show, hey, I'm a progressive veteran for peace. I'm apologetically progressive, like you said at the beginning of the show, that we check all the right boxes. But the thing we haven't done yet is bringing the troops home with dignity. And that's what I want. Because if we just bring all the troops home tomorrow, that 20 veterans a day is going to turn into 40. And we cannot allow that to happen either. Because we're just creating a larger problem by creating by, by solving another one. Yeah. So we can bring the troops back and give them the protections to give them a safe journey home. Because right now, America is not safe economically for people that are coming out for the first time, even if you're a vet. And it's dangerous, and it's economically dangerous, and it's causing veterans to, to, to murder themselves. Yeah, and, and the yeah, context that you provided is very important because, you know, for me, I've never served in the military, although I have two brothers that did. You know, getting really into the nitty-gritty of it about how this affects you psychologically, how this affects your character and whatnot, I think that's so important because if you know about what it's like, then you can carefully design policy that addresses human need. And I think that that's what's lacking, right? Nobody in Congress... Um, really thinks about the human need for any policies. But when it comes to veterans issues and whatnot, they just don't think about that, right? These are just pawns in a game of imperialism and yes. they are dehumanized. And it's really upsetting to see that. You know, we, we send them off to die in wars. We don't take care of them when they come home. And it's sad because we all, like we know someone who's a veteran. Like I said, my brother, like he came home from the military. He fought in the first Iraq war and he was mute for five to 10 years. I want to say he didn't speak because he was so traumatized. Um, so it's like, these are things that are, they're not being addressed, and the only people who know about them are veterans, but it's really difficult to like be vulnerable and talk about these things. So that's why yeah. it's so important for people like yeah. you who are in the military kind of bring up, hey, these are the issues. This is how we're and, trained to be. And this is, a, this is another thing, is I was enlisted 
a lot of the uh, Congress members and people in Congress right now were officers of some sort. Mm. They saw a completely different level of the military that they are just completely oblivious that the other exists. Yeah. Like it is a it is a multi-tier society in the military. And if you're not enlist if you're not enlisted, you get you get the golden spoons, you get the silver spoons while everybody else is living in squalor, mm-hmm. while you have chiefs pressing down on our heads making our lives a living hell to the point where people are just screaming for for relief even if it's at the end of a needle or a bottle or a gun. Yeah. And 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 that is what's happening right now to our veteran community, because we only live in a world that is oppressive and then we get out into another world that is oppressive. So when you get out into that extra world, then you're living and you're just living in the, the festering depression of what the military was, because most members in the military are pretty depressed. Yeah. You know, nobody wants to have their ru- lives ruled over all the time. You know, it is it is it is disgusting to know. Like, I, I'll share this quick story and then we can move on. One of the moments that I remember recognizing true freedom was when I was driving down the road west, uh, no east, uh, down the highway, and the idea popped in my head is I can drive down this road all the way to the other coast and nobody would care. And it brought me to tears. Mm-hmm. It brought me to tears to know that I could go across the country freely without having to report to anyone. Just that simple pleasure alone was groundbreaking for me. And, and I, had, I had to deal with that. I still deal with that to this day. I still deal with that. Those traumas, those little traumas it's that we always things. Yeah, it's little, little things like that. And that's why it's so important to get people like you elected. Like you care about human beings and you fully understand human need and you know that's why i consider myself a humanist not just because of the you know the non-religious components of that because i genuinely care about human beings with that being said though i think that one criticism that i often face kind of switching gears is that i'm too anthropocentric and i think that that's probably a fair criticism um and i'll share a little bit of experience with me so when i was in college i took my first philosophy course and i was introduced to peter singer peter singer is someone who makes the case for animal welfare and rights that is indisputable and ever since then you know what i kind of already cared about it really put it into perspective and it led me to try to seek out, you know, vegetarianism and veganism. Now, a couple of years ago, I had a meatless diet and I failed miserably because I ah. didn't teach myself how to cook. So, you know, that repetition, just the same, getting the same Boca burgers over and over again and just trying to live off of that didn't work. And I thought, oh, you know, this is great. I'm going to go vegan. So, you know, that failed. But I'm back to, you know, the state where I really, especially thinking about the climate and how much veganism would impact the environment. There's just no reason not to anymore. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is because you are so unique in that you're one of the only candidates proposing a very robust animal welfare uh, platform. And I want you to talk through this because you're a vegan, so you are someone who I aspire to be like. I'm trying to learn recipes and actually learn how to cook for myself. That would would be a little bit helpful. Um, But talk about your animal rights platform because that's something that we don't hear enough about. And this isn't just about animal welfare for that morality aspect, which I think is absolutely important. But this is also about the climate. So there's there's no reason for us not to be vegan anymore. And you're kind of bringing that to the forefront. And for a lot of people, it's uncomfortable because it is. You know, it's difficult to grapple with that fact. How am I living my life? Is it fully ethical? No, it's not. You know, right. so um, explain that because, you know, I, I think that that's really important and it's not talked about enough. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I am vegan. I've been vegan for almost four years now. Um, the reason I went vegan uh, was for the environment. Um, I went and I watched a documentary called Houseferacy after going to a, a climate action march where there was a woman wearing a cow costume holding up a sign saying you can't be a true environmentalist unless you're vegan. Watch Houseferacy. So I was like, sure. I'll listen to the random woman in a cow costume. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I went and I watched it and it changed my life. Um, it was by, I think I watched it mid-December and then by then, or early December, and then by January 3rd, um, I was fully vegan. I, I completely eliminated all animal products from my from my life. Uh, well, not my life yet, but most uh, at least from my diet. Um, and and I felt great. I thought I was going to die. I thought I was going to die. Being malnourished, I you know I used to bodybuild when I was in the Navy. Um, I I I'm this thin because I don't eat enough. It's not because of my veganism. <laughs> uh, but I used to I used to lift weights and I felt healthier after going vegan after a month than I did my entire peak condition of fitness um, so 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 for me it was it was a big radical change um, so for that year I stumbled through it and I was able to continue to to be vegan learn it I wasn't like an evangelist vegan at that moment right it was like I'm just gonna learn this for me to make sure that I could do it well enough before I start advocating anybody else to do it. It means learning new recipes. That means knowing where to go to restaurants, like knowing every aspect of what it's like to live a life as a vegan. It took me a year. Um, and then after that year, I watched a documentary called Earthlings where I saw the horrors of factory farming. I saw the horrors of, you know, fur-based, uh, you know, leather making, all of it, right? And, and I just was appalled that we were doing this to our world, um, not just environmentally, but just just ethically. I felt like, oh, morally, this is gross. Like we're we're murdering these baby chickens like hours in within birth just because they're males and they provide no use to society. And I was just like, that's disgusting. We need to stop this practice. And so so I don't I do not say we should ban all meat. That's not my 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 policy. So let me get into the policies first. I would like to caveat and say this. When I put in um, in my environmental platform, there is a there is a plank in there, which is this: the elimination of all animal agriculture subsidies. Right now, we are we are wasting tons of money, and we're picking winners and losers when the dairy industry and the meat industry are actually losing because of the fact that people are becoming more aware and plant-based products are becoming more widely available. So we're having the subsidized dairy farmers more than we ever have in this country. One because of Trump's tariffs, which is interesting enough, but another is because it's just not a popular product. We dumped, I think, millions of gallons of milk out last year because it just couldn't leave the shelf fast enough so 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 we have to stop subsidizing that we should also subsidize stop subsidizing fossil fuels anything that hurts the environment we should stop subsidizing so i'm not just single line animal agriculture i'm talking about big agro too that also isn't doing well by the environment either so when it comes to animal rights we need to give we need to start doing things more humanely like you're talking about banning uh you know shark fins and and actually taking taking real steps against you know animal uh horse soaring which is a horse practice that is used just to make horses walk higher right it's just like they put these iron hoofs on them that are so heavy that they have to like fling their legs up just so they can walk it's disgusting the practice is, is inhumane you also have the fact that when we when we create medicine for example so so when we when we have um 
testing for new generic medicines and we're going to make Tylenol A plus to Tylenol A plus plus, right? Every time you make that new iteration, you have to go through all of the testing requirements that the FDA requires before you can just put it into the public. So that means they know what Tylenol is going to do to the mice, but they go ahead and put the mice to the same rigorous test to kill them every time. It's not necessary. Like it's un it's useless it's useless loss of life in in a system that is more expensive. It's not it's not conducive to research. We could do it on a computer screen. We don't have to kill the mice every time we know how the mice are going to perform to the like DNA molecule we know, right? So we can do things like that. So so basically what I'm talking about is really just common sense reforms. And and you know, I'm not this this vegan that's going to create vegan bill number A and vegan bill or number A, but <laughs> vegan bill A, <laughs> vegan bill B. Um, but but we're going to be like, hey, we're going to slide in this amendment to the farm bill. Hey, we're going to slide this amendment into this medical bill. We're just going to do these little amendments that are going to benefit animals that the country already agrees with and not call it vegan we're just going to call it animal rights mm -hmm. you know and people agree with this stuff this isn't foreign people don't like what's happening at sea world people don't like the idea of fur practice after they watch it happen for the first time when they electrocute these poor animals from the anus and pull out the you know disclaimer right like it's gross it's it's it's, it's horrifying like a horror movie so so i think most americans can agree that that stuff is just wrong and archaic and nobody wants to see this happen and they, they they picture their dog or their cat in that situation they'll be like oh my god how dare you even make the reference it's like hey it's a four-legged animal that can't talk yeah like, yeah you know, yeah like, you know, that's that's what it is so it's got to bring up the standards and i'm not saying we need to treat humans as equal as animals i'm just saying that we should give uh, animals enough rights to not be subjugated or tortured and killed right right it's just we can see something as lesser but not like equal we but not have to kill it like we don't kill our animals for that same reason mm -hmm. right we don't or we don't kill our pets i mean we don't right. kill our pets because we see them more morally desirable than a pig but we need to give that pig, I think, the same level of, of that that dog deserves, right? So it's a little controversial, but you know, it 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 needs to be said. And I and I do represent a segment of the population that does want to see more ethically based um, legislation that actually accounts for all species and mm -hmm. not just us, because look what human based uh, laws have done to our planet. Yeah. Right. You know, if we if we consider the actual, you know, animals in the rainforest, you know, maybe we wouldn't chop them down so fast. Right. You know, mm -hmm. or or the or the deforestation. Right. That we do is like, man, if we actually took consideration of the deer and the wolves, you know, because we care about the animals, maybe we wouldn't have done that to the, to the rainforest or murdered all the wolves. Right. So so that's those it's just those basic things that if humans just thought differently, I think we would have got our way out of a lot of really unattended consequences. Yeah. And yeah. It, we just saw everything as ours and now we're reaping what we sow. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's just exploitation to the point where there's nothing left to exploit and now we're thinking how is this going to affect my life? But I think that this like conversation now is really it's crucial, right? Because a lot of people, they're thinking bigger, you know, they're, they're thinking long term, they're thinking, what is my place in history going to be? So like 200 years from now, if human beings are lucky enough to survive, you know, how will 
people look back at us now and how we treated animals. And that's my thought is, of course, ethically speaking, we're, you know, ideally always progressing forward. So I, I can't help but think I would very much judge myself, you know, unkindly as someone who's a meat eater. But it's about education. It's about kind of learning. Yeah. And really, it is. It's it's not just a diet change, which is kind of yeah. why the way that I viewed it was uh, this is just a diet, but I'm on it forever. But it's a lifestyle change. And that's it kind of lifestyle. it's learning. It's about, you know, messing, messing up, but taking the chance and then trying to reevaluate your position. Perfect. Exactly. My, my, my fiance, she drank college, uh, collagen by accident. And it was like, oh, you just got day zeroed, and we joke, we joke about it, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you got day zeroed, which means, oh, you lost your veganism. And you're going to start from day one now, and not <laughs> keep features, which is a joke, of course. We yeah. don't do that together, um, but but you know, it, it, it's become this this thing. So I do want to mention this about veganism. Okay, I want to mention some facts that maybe your audience doesn't know. Mm -hmm. So we have about 7.5 billion humans on the planet, right? And the we have 76 billion farm animals on the planet right now. Now think about that. Those cows, those pigs, those chickens, they eat a hell of a lot more food than we do, right? When it comes to grain, just per grain, right? That is just, it's just insane. So they account for 52% of the land use. 51% of our actual freshwater use. It is accounts uh, for the same amount of emissions that every car, plane, truck, train, everything, all of our transportation combined is the animal agriculture. Um, it also is one of the largest polluters of ocean dead zones uh, in the entire country. We have uh, pig lagoons that are actually uh, going into communities uh, that are low poverty and giving a massive amount of, of, of asthma. Pig lagoons are basically holes in the ground that they dump the pig crap into and they just keep them there because there's nothing else and when there's a hurricane they just flood everything and get everybody else sick it's and get our vegetables with e coli um you know uh and and i just heard the statistic yesterday um four pounds of beef which is what the average american eats every month is equivalent to one flight from new york to london so think about that. Every average American in the country is taking the equivalent of one flight from New York to London on their own. That is how horrible beef is and all meat is in our entire in our animal products in general. Is is it's destroying our planet. Like it's comical to think about the fact that if we just didn't feed the cows, we'd have plenty of food for everybody like overnight. It, it, it's just it's just insanity to think that we played this stupid archaic game where people were like, oh, but if we eat all soy or we eat all vegetables and there wouldn't be enough vegetables for everybody. It's like the cows are eating something. Yeah. They're eating vegetables. They're eating soy. They're <laughs> it's eating such a grain. simple thing that you could think through like that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So we just cut out the middleman and then now we have all the soy in the grain. Yeah. So that they're eating and then we're going to be able to have the food necessary. But anyways, I just wanted to make sure that your audience understood the impacts of, of what animal agriculture is doing to our planet. Yeah. And and it is it is devastating it is absolutely devastating. Go to a vegan calculator online and compare what your water save what you're saving in water CO two emissions just alone. It's it's an, it's it's the fastest thing anybody can do for the environment tomorrow. Yeah.
Yeah, and that's what's really, I I think, given me this sense of urgency, because I already was won over with the morality argument, but also Mm -hmm. when you factor in that carbon footprint and what it does to the planet, it's like, this is just a no a no brainer. Just about go, go doing vegan, it. exactly. Go vegan. You and, know, I mean, and and I don't I don't say that to like you go vegan right now. Yeah. I say that because <laughs> I'm saying that because like you know, there's no reason not to. There's yeah. no moral justification other than meat tastes good mm-hmm. that is going to you know keep it. And, and right now, right now in this community in our in the vegan community, it, like you're on the west coast, you're even better, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. So 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 you have access to probably the best vegan foods that has ever existed on the planet. Portland, Oregon is yeah. great. Yeah. 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 So 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 there is even no more excuse for you either yeah. because because you probably already have vegan friends that are doing it and you could easily learn. So, yeah, and that's so, a good yeah. point because I, I kind of noticed something and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I do feel like yeah. there is a bit of a cultural shift like we're in the middle of that because before, yeah. like 10 years ago, it's like if you knew someone who was vegan, it was like that was so yeah. strange. Yeah. But now so many people are vegan. Like I know multiple people who are vegan where it's yeah. not it's not so like elusive anymore. It's like, it's oh. It's not a stereotype anymore. Exactly. It's just anybody, you know, yeah. vegan politician, you know, vegan athletes, vegan everybody. Like yeah. it's everybody. There's vegan everywhere, all over the corners of the globe. And the cheapest foods are vegan: beans, rice, you know, veggies, fruits, mm-hmm. nuts, seeds. Like those are the cheapest foods in the grocery store. So, so a lot of people, and I, I always make fun of the. Whatever, poor college kid, when you're eating ramen and bite beans <laughs> and rice, you were vegan. Yeah, right? that's you true. You were living on that, you know. And and so so yeah, it's one of those things that you know i think we understand is like if you don't eat meat you just don't eat meat and there's so many other things you can eat there's ten thousand other ingredients you can choose from yeah yeah absolutely well thank you for sharing those statistics and opening the door to that i i just think that it's so we're in such a fascinating time to where i want to pick the brains of veganism especially since i'm so vegan curious i'm you know i'm going to graduate from vegetarian to vegan but i I just think it's so fascinating but you have shared so much with us Everyone who's watching this, if you're still watching, you're convinced. So we're preaching to the choir at this point. So tell us where we can find you on social media and most importantly, what we can do to help you. Yes, absolutely. So thank you for this. So on social media, follow us on Twitter, Jose uh, Gaboyero SD. So like San Diego SD. Um, and then you can follow us on Instagram. Uh, we are at jose.gaboyero.sd. And then Facebook, I think it's at Jose4, the number four SD. And then on uh, go onto our website. Go onto our website, joseforcongress.us, like U.S. That's what that's what our website is. A donate. I'll tell you, and I'll, I'll finish this quickly. We actually have the advantage of being. I, I'm actually a field consultant by trade. That's what I do for for a living. And I've been able to be able to to bring down the cost of knocking on a door to a dollar. One dollar gets me a paid fifteen dollar an hour paid canvasser. With a with a yard sign, a T-shirt, and and a door hanger, we've been able to really scrape the cost because cheap, paper's cheap, and all you have to do is pay the labor. And when you're paying the labor, they're going to walk, they're going to do the work, they're going to fight, they're going to make sure. And we have the paper for the volunteers to go out and walk and talk. So we've actually brought down the cost per door knock dramatically. So please donate to our campaign because that's what they're saying right now. Jose can't win because he hasn't raised the money. Make that not true. I know that the progressives in our community are dying for an open progressive seat like this one. District 53 is a leadership district. It will be ours if we take it. And we will be able to swing for the fences because whoever takes this will never lose it. And we have to make sure that it's the progressive in front. We've been in front 
and 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 I'll finish with this last point. A little birdie told me that they did a name recognition poll, and we are tied with the council president statistically. It is it is a real thing. We have really lit the imagination of this district, and we need your support, your follows, your sharing of those contribution links. Go to our website, joseforcongress.us. Slash, uh, uh, yeah, Jose.us. Just go there, click donate, and then you can go from there. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute blast. I, I think that before we went on, we knew that we would this would be very long because we're both kind of like two peas in a pod with chatterboxes yeah. and whatnot. So we're watching. We're going to you know be rooting for you, and good luck. I, I think you've got yeah. a great shot. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate you. With your help, we can win. We yes. can win. So, donate. So, <laughs> donate because you know what they say, when you raise more money, you get more money. So so that's what we're trying to do. So help us be that rock over the hill. So I really appreciate you guys so much for your time. Perfect. We'll leave that there. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've made it this far, as usual, we cannot end the show without thanking all of our YouTube members, our PayPal members, and Patreon patrons, um, because they really are the lifeblood of the show. We could not thrive, let alone survive, without your support, so thank you so much. It truly means the world, especially in a time when YouTube is always changing the algorithm to fuck us over royally. So thank you all so much. It's really much appreciated in times like this where, you know, the channel isn't doing uh, too great. You know, we're doing okay, but, you know... 43% or 50% actually decrease in views. A little bit worrying. But nonetheless, we're going to be okay because of you. So thank you all so much. Um, I think I'm done talking because at this point I'm just rambling. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I will see you next week. I'm Mike Figueredo. Take care, everyone.